turned out to be completely unreliable assholes. <laughs> Hello, Tim. Hello. Friends, let me introduce ourselves. McDuffie's <laughs> the name. Ryan McDuffie. And... Uh, Tim, Tim Aslan. That's me. We're podcasters. And we have a story to tell. I know. <laughs> Who hasn't got a story? Well, no one's got a podcast like this one. Nobody. And what is this podcast? It is Dismembering Horror, episode 171 of Dismembering Horror. The podcast show where, hey, we just introduced ourselves, myself, Ryan McDuffie, and Tim. And myself, Tim Aslan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do we do here? We dismember a horror film. We, uh, we talk about what worked for us, what did not work for us, and anything else we found interesting or noteworthy about a horror film. We like to do ones that you, our listeners, our fellow fiends, horror fiends and friends, submitted to us. We just like to do things that we haven't seen, you know, try to dig for the buried treasure there. And every, we also like to do, sometimes it happens, our all-time favorites because they are seasonally applicable or because the people have spoken and want to hear us talk about them. <laughs> as is the case for today, as is the case of uh, what my, my funny intro was all about, my all-time favorite films we're doing today, Gremlins. 1984 gremlins tim and for yep. our holiday season happy holidays everyone can you believe it <laughs> i yes and no i don't know <laughs> <laughs> uh, great well tim i mean i'm just so there's so much i want to talk about about this film so anything else to say really before just gotta dive into our trailer here I mean, not really. What else is there to say? <laughs> right. Yeah, no, no super big news. I just think we got some gremlins to talk about. So then yeah. with that, all right, we'll set the tone here. From 1984, directed by Joe Dante, one of my favorites, and also with a uh, screenplay by... Uh, Chris Columbus. I was seeing if he had a co-writer on this. Nope, straight up Chris Columbus here from 1984. Gremlins! Billy Pelser has a nice home. Billy, is that you? Yeah, Mom, it's me. A nice job. A nice girl. If you're not doing anything this Thursday night, maybe you'd like to uh, go out on a date with me? I'd love to. And loving parents who are about to give him... You're going to like this. No, 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 don't shake it. We're going to have to open it now. We'll wait till Christmas. The most unusual gift he ever got. What is it? No. It's your new pet. Come on, Barney, be a good dog. My dad gave it to me. But there are a few things to keep in mind. If you expose it to the light, you may hurt it. If you get it wet, it will multiply. All that from water? They got wet? Yeah, plain water. And most important, no matter how much they beg, never, never let them eat after midnight. Because when they do, they change. 
They become clever. What a wonderfully like early eighties quality that trailer voice had. <laughs> I didn't that's immediately... the guy, right? <laughs> no, like some that's... famous trailer guy. No, it, I mean maybe that's how he sounded back then, but I just assumed it sounded so different from the inner world nineties guy to me. This guy had a oh, more it's like definitely s- yeah, it's definitely a different person than that. Okay, this is the this is the <laughs> for me this is like the standard voice for my childhood, you know, commercials for movies. Cool. Got it. Yeah, no, very (laughs) uh, appropriate storybook quality to it. Great. Well, Tim, after our trailer, we like to start off with our rating per our rating system. Would we tell ourselves to avoid, stream, rent, or buy this film? Who should go first? You can go first. (laughs) <laughs> just to get it out of the way <laughs> by, yeah foregone by, conclusion right exactly uh well i'm not only a buy it i did the math i think i'm a i guess i'm a a four times buy it i remember having this film taped off of tv it was a <laughs> it, but but it started when he's walking with the flat when billy's walking with the flashlight into the ymca outside wow. like in the snow so missed a lot of the movie there but then Seriously. bought the vhs bought the dvd bought the blu-ray and i've also now bought the ultra hd blu-ray so wow if that's not a buy it i don't know what is tim this film it's just one of my all-time favorites it's it's one of those films too like you know so many times you get asked like what is your favorite movie what are your favorite movies whatever and for me, like what I'd need to check off like on that list to be an absolute all-time favorite, a big one for me, it's actually pretty limited in that it would be something that I've that's been in my life for a really long time. Like even mm. new favorites, you can't necessarily say that about, you know? Yeah. But uh clearly as I just said, I had a taped off of TV version. This was just one of those films I'd watch every weekend, um, pretty much. Jesus. And I think aside from Aside from, you know, like Steven Spielberg, who's a big part of this film, and George Lucas, I'm pretty sure Joe Dante was the first filmmaker I kind of ever made a connection to, like, between two movies I liked, The Explorers in this movie, going like, oh, it's the same filmmaker. Oh, what are the similarities here? What You know, it was the first time I really conceived of or understood that, like, directing was almost a thing you know at that super young age right just when you're taking movies for granted um <laughs> yeah yeah i'm just That's gonna cool. be defending this movie through and through not that it really needs it uh but i'm excited to hear what you have to say i um I, look i it, it's it's hard not to just default into a buy because of what it is and when it was in my lifetime, right? Like I was six, I think, when I saw this. So it's like, <laughs> I don't know, what more can you ask for, right? Like, um, but having said that, from a really, really critical eye, there are things that I'm like, oh, that's not quite like great. 
but it's really technical. Well, it's not necessarily technical, but it's very specific things that overall I don't think matter. But if you're really being like, okay, my job is to like dissect this movie and tell you like how you could make it better. There are a handful of things that I was like, oh, hmm. All right. Yeah, those exist. And I never would have thought of about them in the past, right? Like you only think of them because we're doing this version of this type of like critique. So I'm I'm still a buy, but like if there wasn't that deep nostalgia and that like history with the movie, I'm I might have slid into a rent. Yeah, no, I can only imagine. I mean, I can't imagine what it'd be like to see this for the first time as an adult, you know? I mean, right, like, seriously. Sh- like what would that do to your brain? Right. I'm sure I uh <laughs> I'd love it, but I remember um there was a screening of it at an arc light, you know, a handful of years ago. Went to uh, and a friend tagged along who had never seen it with uh, me and a couple other of his friends who, you know, have this love for it. And it just, just him kind of be like, what, what the hell was that? You know, like this would be <laughs> so strange. Um, but uh, no, and I'll be interested to explore. Like for me, it's like you can't, like I would never want to actually change it, you know? Right. But of course, yeah, I'm sure in our what did not work section, I'll I want to throw around some what ifs that could be fun, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. Well, how was it revisiting for you? Like, when was the oh, last it was time? Great. Okay. I mean, it's just so much fun to to get back. I mean, I, on the flip side of what the sort of criticism, I, you know, as a filmmaker now, I'm looking at it and noticing things from that point of view that I'm like, whoa, this is exceptional filmmaking. So like, you know, yeah. maybe I still would be a buy. It, it's those things probably outweigh the the critique or critical things I, I think about it. Since so much just about the nature of how this film was made of like being relatively limited budget, but mm-hmm. the, and the spe- being so special effects heavy yeah. and it. And like, you know, I went through the commentaries for this. I'm all I've done my research here. It should be fun discussion, but it's. Like, yeah, when you said it's 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 great, great filmmaking, it's also just one of those examples where it's like it had magic on its side in a way. Whether it's sure. just those special effects that the special effects guys, you know, they're only making fun of them, you know, like and how they just barely pulled it off and probably in the end feel like they didn't pull it off because they're looking at it critically. But it's just, I mean, you look at these Mogwai's faces and it's just incredible like right <laughs> uh, they pulled this off from the dog acting to the I'll, casting i guess we'll talk about it i th- presume well i don't know maybe it's a, a, a what work but a big question i have is like how they shot the close-ups of any of the puppets and and so maybe you you in your diving into the <laughs> the behind the scenes you have an answer for that yeah. Uh, yeah, no, and I think some of my things I had down for the things of note uh, will actually maybe be better placed for context and what works. So, okay. but before we get to that, we got to summarize this old film, as we always do. What What is this film, Tim? I mean, I feel like this is, this is a, a summary that is just made for you to take on yourself. <laughs> Great. 
<laughs> All right. Let's see here. How to the point, non uh, just telling the whole thing can I be? Well, it's a real Anytown USA story, but uh, I'd say wearing its inspiration on its sleeve of the sort of 50s horror sci-fi inspiration, small town creatures invade. And so we just sort of have that Americana feel in, through our story, through and through, as far as just average American boy, like in the average American girl here, 80, I should say very 80s, all that. Actually not. I think it's, it's all very um, timeless quality to it, I'd say. And while we, uh, <laughs> well, uh, not so famous inventor Rand Peltzer is looking for a very special Christmas present, as we were just talking about before this, Tim, and how, <laughs> how difficult it is to shop for Christmas presents. <laughs> but he wants to find something really special for his kid, Billy Peltzer, and finds in a uh, underground, <laughs> like literally, uh, Chinese-run antiquities shop, a strange creature, which the shop owner refers to as Mogwai, and uh, cuts a deal, takes this creature home, but has to follow a strict set of rules, which they are not so good about doing. <laughs> oh my God. But they are told to never feed these creatures after midnight is the biggest, or that's, I guess, that's the biggest one. And then sort of going reverse order here, uh, that they hate bright light, sunlight will kill them, and to not get them wet. So in that reverse order, they kind of, they break those rules. So it's, a, well, we got a fun little, like, it's all Christmas set, I should say, or I already said that because he's buying a Christmas present. But uh, this cute, cuddly mogwai, which they refer to as Gizmo, an accident gets water spilled on it, multiplies into some pretty nasty little, not as friendly furry critters. They all have their little non-Gizmo personalities to them, really demanding little, little persnickety doos. And uh, <laughs> after, uh, and, oh, they, they, they forcefully, they trick Billy to feeding them after midnight and turn into their post-pupil stage selves, <laughs> which are referred to by the film and some lore, kind of, sort of, within the film as gremlins. And the gremlins, they, they, the, the, the batch escapes, they run amok, um. Well, they well the well no no they all get killed off except for one stripe, who then uh jumps into a swimming pool, which is exactly what uh you would not want if you were trying to prevent mass gremlin birthing multiplying, and they I don't know I'd say they turn into about a thousand gremlins or so maybe five hundred something like that Somewhere enough to fill a big old movie theater. And run amok on this town of uh, Kingston Falls, aka <laughs> the Warner's backlot. And uh, they, they're what does running amok even? They, they're just basically they're 
They're satiating their base most urge. They seem to be the embodiment of satiating base most human urges of just causing trouble, causing mischief, causing everything from light harm to serious harm. Like death. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and just find uh, elation all the way through. So Billy and his girlfriend, Kate, they uh they gotta and Gizmo in tow, they gotta work to defeat these creatures, prevent an even further spread, which could be catastrophic, as is again a lot of uh the consequences of a lot of fifties sci-fi horror movies. What happens if the heroes don't win when uh the world will be taken over by the threat? Yeah. And uh, they do save the day because Chris Columbus believes in happy endings. <laughs> All right. All right. And what, but what is it? What is it? Maybe we can save that for what worked. Yep. All right. Well, anything I missed there? <laughs> no. I, I mean, do you want me to, like, correct you? I mean, yeah, sure. Yeah, please. <laughs> it's a technicality. Uh, it's the Universal Studios lot. It's not the Warner lot. No, it's um, not. It's both. Oh, is it both? Because they, mostly... they use the town square that's at Universal that is the exact same town square as um, Back to the Future. I always thought the, the, it was the Warner's town square. It was a mix, but... I guess it couldn't be. No, I thought it was the Warner's Tom Town Square that's like the same as in Gilmore Girls. Like well, I don't know about Gilmore Girls, but it is it is most certainly the Back to the Future lot, which which I've been to. It's on Universal. All right. Well, I've been to the Warner Brothers lot and they showed me all the Gremlins filming locations. Ooh. So they uh, Well, I mean they're right next to each other. They probably use both. Yeah. Great. We'll settle at that. I <laughs> It's now been about a week since I watched the commentaries, but I feel like I could have better gleamed uh, this mystery. But that is all aside the point, Tim. That doesn't matter for our summary of the film. Anything <laughs> I missed to kind of help paint the picture of what this all is? What happens? What does not happen? Yep. Yeah, that's it. That's the movie. Great. They win in our the end. end. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> Yeah, they learn a lesson along the way. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, then with all that, we can further jump into it with our next big section here. What worked? What worked? What worked for you? What worked for you? It worked like a charm, Smith. What worked? What worked? Well, kind of like come off, yeah, what I was just posing. Like, what is this film? I was trying to think about like what works as this film as a whole. Like what made, not even just for me, but knowing it was a box office hit and kind of an unexpected one. You know, like, I don't know. It seems kind of like a curiosity. Like, well, why, why did this movie not only, you know, you can have a lot of films, kind of like oddball films that go on to have cult status, but this film has the cult status and the huge box office to kind of back up its legacy here. And I think it's just something uh, 
it's that it's wholly original, you know? It's so mm. unique. Like, it was actually um, when Steven Spielberg came across the script written by Chris Columbus, that was more like, you know, um, I don't know if it's an outline or a script or whatever that he wrote in film school. Steven Spielberg said it was one of the most original scripts he had ever read. Joe Dante put it as he has no idea why it was successful, but his guess was that it had a certain novelty value just uh, as far as like what else was, you know, in theaters at that time, it was different. And then um, kind of like I already said, I think it's that it has, it just feels like a movie with its timeless quality, you know, just the kind of world it exists in like a uh, Howie Mandel who did the voice of Gizmo. He said his kids, so random. <laughs> right. He said his kids, when he showed it to them, they had no sense of it being like an, quote unquote, 80s movie. You know, there's nothing that really dated it for them. Mm. Kind of like, you know, what all like the Stranger Things glows to kind of homage or whatever. Right. Um, Interesting. So I don't know. And I just kind of think of another actually, I don't know, maybe not so coincidentally, just another film from this era. Goonies just comes to mind as like, it's so like you can never replicate it or duplicate it. These films, they just have such a feel to them when you're watching them. Uh, so I don't know that, that for me is the biggest like overarching thing about them that I think works. Um, gremlins, not <laughs> Goonies we're talking about, but gremlins, their originality that it has. It's, it's a super unique. Yeah. Yeah. That's a hard thing to try and pin down. Um, and that's on top of the tight script and everything you need, blah, blah, right. blah, direction. Yeah, like, what was the, like, what would the expression be? Like, the, the, the joie de, uh, joie de vivre, is that how you say that? Joie de vivre, something like <laughs> yeah. that? Yeah, what does that mean? French. Um, the, there is something about, I think it's, it's kind of, it's a, it's a bunch of different things happening at once at a very specific time in history. Right? Like so much of this film benefited from the fact that PG-13 didn't exist yet. And like actually this film that's a thing of note we'll talk about later why PG-13 this is why PG-13 exists this movie. So like it's PG P- parents at this era. I mean, I just the other day was watching something and they were reminding us that Jaws was PG. Jaws is well, you PG, think of right? The, the literal words that PG stands for, it makes sense. Parental guidance. Right. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> but like we, like I said, I saw this in the theater when I was six years old. So cool. Right. Think about that. A six-year-old saw this. And it was scary. It was super scary. And so you're, you're, it's a domino effect. You're, you're, ta- you're taking a, not a, and like, I'm not saying that it's not a good movie for adults either. Like, it's a great movie. Like, my parents think Gremlins is amazing. But they also had kids that then subsequently were young enough to see it and go, that was a lot, but I want a gizmo. I want a stripe. I want like I want the thing in this thing which then sets this machine in motion of of marketing. And like 
you didn't there was a there was limited stuff out there at this time right like we didn't have a billion different toys just had star wars yeah we had star wars he-man and gi joe for boys and barbie and like i don't know a couple uh, like I, dolls like uh, like some random dolls and like that's it like that's a that's a simplification but that's kind of how it felt that for me as a kid like you had very limited stuff so when a new thing like a new completely original concept comes out it goes nuts like kids go crazy and then that makes the parents go crazy and the marketing is you know feeding that craziness and so it just sort of it takes on a life of its own the, and almost none of that is to say anything about the the film itself but like inherent in that is that the film sparked all of that right that right. feeling of like oh i want more of this well maybe we can try to yeah i want to try to keep in mind some uh, more overall things that worked with this that works with this film but what you're getting to really is saying that there is a marketing niche or a marketing um what do you call it, opportunity fulfilled by gizmo 100 <laughs> percent. so i, I mean look we, we we were experiencing it again on a certain level right like grogu baby yoda yep had the same effect on the world well so that's so i could yeah we could say so like, from a design point of view they're tapping into something that we all are like, hell yeah. Well, that's why I wanted to say, like, what is that thing that's being tapped into that clearly there's an appeal for, there's a market for? So we can say in terms of our section here, our, our, um, our rundown, our review, we could say what works about Gizmo, right? What works about Mogwise? He's and, cute. He's yes. small. He's vulnerable. He's smart. Yes, 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 yes. What I think it like is I don't know. The the way I can put it now though, I thought was kind of fun is uh actually well I'm I'm petting him right now. My cat Tim just yeah. reminds me so much of little Gizmo. And I think that's sort of the key in like when I was thinking of well, what is a Grogu and a Gizmo in relation to our current pets, Furbies, da da da. They are they are just a notch above like what our pets are capable of. You know what I mean by that? Like they are fulfilling, they're fulfilling the dream of communication that we have with our pets. Like, like I, I understand when Sixto says, you know, he has a certain kind of meow based on where he is. I know he's asking for food. So it's just the sort of what if, if rather than, it was, I want food now. You know, it was just that <laughs> Which little. Which is basically what Gizmo does, right? Yeah, exactly. And then like you can, you know, have fun, play games with your pets. But and, but Gizmo just offers that bit much more where you can also find the right notes on a piano and sing and play with him too. <laughs> and it's, but then on the other, it's it's also, I think that he, Mogwai's, her, it, um, they are... Not so far that they aren't so far in the direction of humans, though, that they're then creepy. Like, we right, don't right. want these little things. Like, imagine if rather than the big old ears, uh, 
that sort of make him look like a, a dog or a marsupial or something that he had a like a, I don't know like a more human ears or human shaped head. It'd be really creepy, right? He'd look it like a little like <laughs> you just start entering the uncanny valley like really yeah. fast. So it's just that this yeah fulfills a perfect um, yeah it just hits that sweet spot whatever Gizmo is and I uh, a lot of that has to do with yeah they just tuned into a goal of this creature has to be cute and. Chris Wayless, designer, magic happened. They pulled from real life inspiration. The colors of Gizmo is the color of Steven Spielberg's dogs, dog uh, <laughs> Cocker Spaniel. Sure. Yeah, that that combo. There so, must be something in our like psychology or, or just our instincts that makes us want to like that that makes us think that that small, cuddly thing is cute in the first place like why do we think that's cute versus anything else but it it does it must attach somehow to like our brains attaching to infants but mm -hmm. it's like an extension of that in a in a weird way it's not up it's they're not us but we like imbue them with like human kind of we humanize them even though they're not. It's weird. What you're saying is, yeah, it's not, they aren't necessarily cute 100%. It's not 100% that they're cute like baby humans, but it's more just that overall thing that a younger cute thing offers. So like like a puppy compared to a full-grown dog. It's a sort of right. that differentiation. Like was that, that classic Simpsons gag where they go see a cute sheep and then they get progressively shorter and their awes get bigger with each one. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Oh um, my god. It's like yeah, the big, big, the big eyes, eyes, yeah. Big ears. Uh soft. Right. Well, it's the uh the innocence uh I think at heart and that those physical traits yeah. is that that's what they're embodying. There's a certain yeah. uh light uh freshness to the world, a fresh perspective that I think holds optimism for us as we get older mm. and jaded. Yep. Gizmos, well, and all I think that's things. why kids responded so strongly to it too, is because they're kind of like, almost in a way, they're like, I can relate to Gizmo. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm not fully formed. I'm kind of still exploring the world. Look, this guy's doing the same thing. But then we have on the reverse of that, there is the equal appeal of the Gremlins, right? Which is its own cool thing because it is, it's so cautionary tale stuff where we, but like in a, in a really satisfying way, because we're like, oh yeah, they have (laughs) personalities too. They're fun and funny and ridiculous. And well, that's, that's kind of my, and I was thinking a whole lot on the themes of this film. Like here's, and this is another way to kind of backtrack a bit too, and be like, what are the overall things that work about this film and of course it's a monster movie you got to talk about like why what niche are these monsters filling now now what are the gremlins what is the gremlins what do they do thematically you know we kind of covered mogwai so if mogwai is the innocent cute side the gremlins i think represent like a lot of movie monsters or you know they represent a certain side of us gremlins are the the deeper base uh, lizard, which they kind of look like, you know, instincts yep. that exist within us. Mischief. Yeah. And uh, 
this is maybe, I don't know. I kind of wanted to skirt over this quickly, not make a big deal out of it, which is I'm doing exactly this and almost had it for things of note. But in thinking about the theme and having not watched it for a while, I had like heard, I think it was in the Wikipedia. Please, I'm like quoting this. I hate that there's, uh, people have reads on this film that gremlins are racist. That's a racist film. And for me to like bring it, yes, that's my reaction. I mean, I'd have to like really think hard about that. No, okay, I got it. Makes me feel gross to say because for me to bring up that idea feels more racist to me. But they were saying there's the fact that there's two kinds of racism within it that people like to project onto it for me kind of invalidates the theory at all. But I think there's a film critic who critiqued that their like portrayal in the bar scene with the kind of music that they were listening to and then uh, the outfits that they were wearing were racist towards African-Americans. And then I had another okay. friend once who went on this whole rant. And I think this comes from, you know, the what is in there, the World War II ideas of, you know, fighting the Japanese, but it's racist towards Asians. And... I, I don't know. For me, it's like, no, I think there's a lot. I don't think it's that simple. And that rings to me as really reductive. But I think yeah. the truth, like the truth in there, um, as far as maybe the, <laughs> the racist towards, I don't know, yeah, Asians, Japanese, the World War II kind of era thing, maybe, you know, it has that connection to it. But I think a more accurate word for that would be xenophobia. Hmm. You know, but I think you can connect the sort of so i do see a connection there though as far as people who have xenophobia that those kinds of fears aren't too dissimilar for what the gremlins represent because like you think of and what this film you know part of it part of its small town america setting uh it's like you're very insulated into your little town you know into your little world and world view you see it with like how Corey feldman reacts to uh the gizmo he's just kind of like oh neat what's that you know like oh sure there are creatures out there in the world i've never heard of you know it's it's through and through in this movie but uh no yeah anyway yeah that's what i was saying like like i think when people are xenophobic what are they actually projecting on other people like that they're other people in the world that there's something unpredictable about them, that they're going to do something that like, I'm just, that's maybe like too much somehow or is dangerous, you know? And I think that that's, that's a lot of what, you know, that's, I see that comparison there. I don't think I have to say more on that. Yeah, sure. I mean, <laughs> I think that's, that's really reaching from like that point of view is really reaching. Cause you're, I feel like you're, almost reverse engineering a point of view into well, the movie. Right. And that's, I mean, I don't, and I don't want to say that's my ultimate route. I was just trying to pull for maybe why someone could go on the, the racist thread. So sure. for me, it is like, I wouldn't even use the word xenophobic. That was just the way I sort of drew the bridge, but I really would put it more as like the themes of what the gremlins represent are just the, the, yeah, they're the worst aspects of human behavior. Uh, behavior and you think of that that's kind of in gremlins too what uh what the brain gremlin he kind of has a has a little has a little speech on what they're all about like i think that he's getting interviewed you know says so like what why are you here what are you doing here and he kind of goes on to say it's all about uh having fun and being uncivilized yada 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 yeah i mean i would 
the connection I would draw, draw the connection? Yeah, sure, why not? Would be more revolving around the, um, you know, if, if, if this is sort of a homage to the 40s, 50s sci-fi, like, monster invasion stuff like that's all rooted in what you're saying sort of this xenophobic like fear of the other or fear of the consequences of like getting involved with the other but really most of that was was more about like fear of like dropping a nuclear bomb on somebody and the radiation that turned a you know crickets into giant crickets <laughs> right you know what i mean so <laughs> absolutely like, it's it, sure it's rooted in this thing of like fear of the other, but it's still not about that. No, so, you're right. I think there's that you can absolutely draw that. That's the same thing. I mean, actually, to your point, you could almost sort of say that's there's a theme stated moment that says that that um, what's his name? That the the just we just call him like old man, but um, Key Luke as Mister Wing. What he says when he picks up Gizmo at the end. He tells them, you've done with Mogwai what you have done with all of nature's gifts. You're not ready. So, I mean, that's kind of to your, that's kind of the ideal of, you know, our civilization, Western society, yeah. building the the atom bomb, whatever. It's this idea, yeah, we, we're destroying nature. We don't have a respect for it. We can't right. follow these very simple rules to not feed them after midnight. It definitely definitely feels more like a commentary on, you know, white middle America kind of just, I mean, which we experience even now where they just, they jump on board with an idea and they just kind of lose touch with the like, you know, sensibility of, of respecting either others or uh, being, you know, uh, having responsibility with things that they don't understand. I mean, that's just our scourge at large, I think, with people right. right now. But this movie is, it's pointing at that for sure. I mean, I would say the thing that stood out to me as like a thing that felt like had, you know, if you're going to use the term racism, it was more like a racist trope of of how they depict the the shopkeeper in the beginning. It feels, a, it, you know, nowadays, I think you would get kind of, criticized for depicting an Asian American guy like that. The mystical old Asian. Right. I mean, that is an old, old trope that we've kind of learned that maybe we should move away from because it's, it's pretty uh, simplistic and, and rooted in some not so pleasant things. So sure. But to then carry on and say that that, is like opening the door for this broader commentary that's all seeped or steeped in racism. I, I just disagree. Um, and I think kind of the same thing applies to the bar scene. You know, it's a, tr it's, it's a now in hindsight, a unpleasant use of a trope that we have learned is probably not the best <laughs> fucking way to do things. <laughs> You know, I'm not trying to make light of it, but like it, it, we're talking about a 35 year old movie, right? <laughs> right. Or whatever. So, of course, there's going to be stuff that we now look at and go, oh, yeah, we've evolved out of maybe not out of it, but we've mo evolved away from that. Or we at least recognize that that's not the way we should 
be depicting certain things. Right. Well, I think you can just not even, you don't even have to put it in the context of, I mean, it's important too, maybe for what you're saying, but to do like the actual read on what's going on, I think that's um, in the way the gremlins replicate human behavior. And this is more just maybe about, you know, what it's it about, where it came from, the themes behind it. But uh, here, this is a, a sort of a, a poll about Christopher Columbus. Uh, Burhan Wazir of The Guardian states that Columbus prefers characters that are the everyday American men, women, and children who struggle to uphold family traditions against a changing, sometimes intimidating society. And then Columbus hmm. himself said, I can understand the validity of showing people the ugliness of the world, but I think there's a place for movies to leave people with a sense of hope. If your film isn't going to do that, I just don't think it's worth making. So less so his quote, but more so, I think, you know, with that um, critic, whoever said, the upholding family traditions against a changing, sometimes intimidating society. Like, it's not just the music the gremlins are listening to, but you remember what else they're listening to? They're listening to uh, pinnacle jazzercise music and you know they're dressed like that too with the headbands and wristbands which are i think were kind of like the 80s version of the 2010s you know journey that yoga went on or you know it's like you see it kind of looked at on shirley scorned and then now it's in geico commercials or whatever you know uh so i think that's what i don't know that's that's where i see the gremlins manifesting that sort of natural conservatism against sort of what's new and different. And it's a kind of allowing by seeing them do it. It's, I don't know. It's another way just to kind of just, just laugh about it. Not even about anything specifically. I don't think, I don't know. But it's, it's still built to teach the lesson, the lesson of the movie, right? Like these people live in this insular world and they, and they mistreat responsibility and they have to pay a price for it. Yeah. And the gremlins are just representative of that. They're mimicking the stupidity and the like ridiculousness of that world. Right. And well, throwing it right back in the in their face, being like, this is what you get. Like it's just holding the mirror up. I mean, that's all it is. So I, I find, you know, I think that's good. That is a thing that worked. It 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 fulfills the the premise of the film. Right. Well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, well, to kind of like, I don't know, shift it from kind of the thematic reading, maybe you'll say the same thing. But if I were just to pose to you like this, I mean, this film is to also just maybe jump to and highlight the fun and games section. This film has one of the best fun and games section yeah. of any film ever. It's just that <laughs> middle chunk where the gremlins are just full on doing everything we're talking about. The bar scene's a big part of it. But so if I just pose to you, like, what is the appeal of that fun and games thing? What is the appeal for you, you think, of watching gremlins go, you know, get into mischief, cause trouble? God. I'm, well, I mean, just just at its core, dressing lizard puppets up as humans <laughs> and having them you know what here's what here's really actually what i think is the the core of what makes it work it's doing the thing that we get a big well not everybody but a lot of people get a huge kick out of dressing their kids up like adults and watching their kids be precocious and pretend 
to be adults without the sort of understanding of what they're doing, it's that exact same thing. It's like your little four-year-old or whatever gets into the, you know, mom's closet and throws on a bunch of stuff and gets into the makeup and puts a bunch of makeup on and comes out and, and is like mimicking the adults, but they don't have context for it. So it's really amusing to watch them do it. You, It's charming. You go, oh, look how cute they are. They're stupid little humans that don't know anything. It, it's the exact <laughs> same thing. It's and, and it goes one step further by having to be these monster, little critter monster things that look insane It's doing it. Yes, I agree. That's... I think that that's a good way to illustrate it. But it's just like the thing is, I think they go a step further or different. Like there is different. It's there's something different in there, also, because like the the gremlins they aren't babies, you know. Like I get, yeah, just it's maybe yeah. You're True. getting at the sort of like the funniness of watching them do jazzercise, but the way they they seem so unabashed and confident in a way of just by, they aren't overthinking how to exist in the world like humans do, you know? No. So I th- I think that's where kind of like the horror comes out of it is just like to just that, that horror of, oh God, what if I were to just unabashedly appeal to my base instincts, you know? Mm-hmm. Because I think that that appears in a lot because I do think a lot of, I don't know, reads on a purpose in life, it can come down to just trying to have a good time, but that doesn't mean, I mean, we, we t- this comes up a lot in horror movies, you know, we've talked about, but it's about, you know, learning, well, but yes, but we also are one unit of people. We shouldn't be putting down other people at that expense. And kind of that is like always our, our kind of human journey, journey we go on is knowing how to ride that line of having fun, but not in the gremlins way. But I don't know, but then it gets tricky because we're always told, yeah, but you know, you shouldn't have to necessarily think about it, you know, like be conscious of your mistakes. So I don't know, maybe that's just something I relate to a lot, or I don't know how, I just want to assume it's human wide too, of just to be in that like not overthinking, is this appropriate or not state? Um. I don't know. It's it's the there's an appeal of the gremlins for not <laughs> ever being a, um, you know, as a, a, a suspect. No, no, you know, they aren't at risk of doing that. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess. I mean, my 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 knee jerk reaction is to think about from a from a personality or like a human brain point of view if we're going to say like, let's just for the sake of, of uh, brevity using this construct of Freud's id ego, superego, right? Like essentially it's, it's ex- an extension of the cautionary tale that the movie is. It's just showing what happens if you don't have, I believe it's the super ego to keep your ego and your id in check in particular, your id, which is just your basal, like, the gremlins. Yeah, I mean, that's what they are. They're a representation of, like, if you did eliminate all of the sort of, like, self-conscious, like, should I or shouldn't I do this? And let me just go. And, and it's what Dante said about it, right? Like, he's saying it's they are just 
going off of their pure primal instinctual, like, I just want what I want and I'm going to do it. And like, that's a fairly universal lesson. <laughs> like, that's not a new thing, but it's a very straightforward thing. And it's something that we all re- like, we can relate to. We go, we all have those moments where we have to put ourselves in check and go, oh my God, like, what am I doing? Like, why am I, and you know, you- I shouldn't be acting this way. So let me like <laughs> rein it in. The gremlins represent if you didn't have that voice in your head to rein yourself in. Right. And you can see, you can make that connection that, you know, and just say it is all one theme of the man versus attacking nature side of things of just, you know, try to look at it as the scope of not individual action, but sort of individual and in the context of collective action. Of, totally. You could say by, by, you know, skirting these rules on, you know, oil companies skirting rules and, and how they deal with the environment, all this stuff, this machine that we've just sort of collectively built and is just a runaway train at this point, you know, that's, that's what he's referring to at the end. That's, that's the macro version of what right. you're saying that, Yeah, like we, you know, we kind of generally agree that we need some sort of accountability and checks and balances in ourselves as well. And that can be, you know, uh, uh, scaled up to anything. And and so it pulled, it's fun to see that how the gremlins pull out the horror of not even caring about that all. Like when they're when they're when they're driving uh, the snow plow through Mr. <laughs> Futterman's, they aren't thinking like, "Oh, uh, should we kill him? Should we not kill him?" They're just they're just going. They're just having fun. Or when they're in the bar, or I love when they're uh, when they're um, try to project the, or when they're in the projection booth in the movie theater, and you see them. It's like they're, it's like kind of sort of like they they're maybe trying to start a film role, but they're also just like. Just knocking everything over, spinning yeah. around in the film reel, all that good stuff. But I don't know. There's just something get that that horror of like to be in a situation and not be overthinking of like, oh, I'm in this bar and I'm not allowed to swing from the fan right now. You know, they're just right. that idea of just being able to go for it. You know, well, and it shows that like they it's it. <laughs> it even extends into the collective nature of it. They don't even care about each other really. Right. Like, and that's, that's again, another part of the horror of it. It's like, it's not like, this is why I would push against any, any criticism that says that they represent like a group because they, they don't, they, they represent an attitude or a, or a lack of, uh, a lack of, I don't know, what, what would you call it? A lack of, um, checks well, and balances, selfish. I guess, like yeah, internal, internal sort of, right? So like, they'll go after each other as fast as they'll go after anybody else. It doesn't matter. And I think actually that aspect is one of the the, the scarier things because it's it's very similar to the effect that a like group hysteria, not hysteria, but like when you get a big group of people all like kind of just acting out, it, it everybody just falls into that they can they 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 lose their their individual like sense of what's right or wrong because the group is just going off the chain 
And so like, and you see that, like, we've seen that in my life. I've seen that a bunch of times where I'm like, holy shit, like the crowd has turned into a weird mob because everybody doesn't want to be the person who's not following along with the crowd. Yeah, and then you know, it just like cascades into fucking chaos. Tim, you know what? I almost wanted to like stop you there just because like I'm like, we're bringing it back to the mob again. Like we're always bringing up <laughs> the idea of the mob <laughs> in our Gremlins discussions. Gremlins is Halloween kills. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, um, but no, I think, yeah, you draw an important new connection. That I don't think we've actually touched on then is like, what is a mob? But if not just a bunch of individuals who are appealing to that base id instinct, right. but justifying it because they have enough of them around themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that speaks to that broader theme of like this wholesome little town being afraid of the outsiders. And actually to get a little more specific about like characters in this movie, they they set us up to understand the conflict within the town by having Mrs. What's her name? Deagle. Deagle. Deagle, Deagle, Deagle. Mrs. Deagle is representative of the id singular. And the town completely bows down to her. And so in the movie, in the first 20 minutes, they tell us that the, ta- the town is not equipped to deal with this type of thing, and certainly not this type of thing on a mass scale. And so, like, we're already primed for it. Like, it is this broader sort of commentary on, I mean, both sides of the groupthink sort of construct. Yeah, what does Miss Deagle say? She's like, I have one purpose in life, to make money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's I, in a way, you could probably even, like, turn the spotlight more onto the, the, the theme of greed itself. Like, un-tethered un, uh, greed, or un-sort of, like, contained greed can run amok. And that's, in a, in a lot of ways, it's motivated by that same thing. D- a complete disregard for the people around you, only caring about yourself, only going after what is going to make you feel good in the moment. Like, it's all greed stuff. Like, the gremlins, I think, are really, they, if you wanted to, like, be a little more fine-tuned about what I think that they maybe represent, like, that's a pretty good one. To, it's i think there's multiple but i think that's a big one yeah well, also like consumerism right there's a reason we end up in the mall you know like th- it's commentary on that stuff and mogwai is a christmas present that he had exactly. to have so bad that he stole yes so the what how ironic that the movies you know <laughs> the movie the result of the movie is like just mass production of like toys Right, right. Appro- yeah, yeah. Stealing from the Chinese too, reappropriating uh, cultures you don't expect. If you want totally. to even pu- push it even further into uh, the, the so tie so- between corporatism and colonialism. Right. I'm sorry. Like, if you think this movie is is in some way on the other end of the spectrum is problematic, like I could 
I feel like we can argue pretty, pretty well that it's actually a condemnation of that type of shit. Yeah. Consumerism, colonialism, uh, just capitalism, greed, like all those things. It it, it is a takedown of those things. It's not propping them up. Like, come on. Well, even though I said it, I feel like as soon as I say the word colonialism in reference to gremlins, I got to now bring it back to maybe we should just talk about the movie itself and <laughs> some non- the, non-thematic things. <laughs> though, we'll keep, though it will keep coming up. No, when we talked it's about- It's all the in th- there, so yeah. Right. When we talked about the, the fun and game section in the middle, um, just I, I got to say my favorite, my biggest laugh in the movie, now that we're over, maybe analyzing- why it's so funny but when them caroling the gremlins caroling just like <laughs> it's i laugh every time it just makes me so happy the way they're like it's the way they're like actually putting in that little bit of effort to do it where it's like you know there's the one who's like looking down and then looking up like he like reads the words and then looks up to sing them that that and that's all it is uh, it's yep. just how they all look in their outfits together, which fun thing of note, that was the first scene that they shot with dressed up gremlins, which they sort of got the idea to do there and then. So it w- they had no plans to dress up gremlins. Oh it wasn't God. in the script until they did that scene. Um, but then also I think something that the fun and games section does well, but then is done well throughout the film. And just maybe another bigger thing that makes it work is it, it does, this film does a really, really great job. Like a lot of the best of those same 50s sci fi horror movies, or even all the ones that are homaging it, Slither or whatever. But where the story, it does a good job of keeping the story contained, but you are still getting a good sense of like the mayhem at large and sort mm-hmm. of the repercussions of them. Like, I think it's so smart, so great. You know, we just have this kind of new couple, whatever you want to call them, and Gizmo. It's kind of our, and this family, you know, as kind of our, maybe a couple people they've, they've met throughout the movie as our like linchpins that we come to. But like, you just think of like, there's that one great moment when, uh, you know, his car's not working. He says, all right, on the count of three, we got to make a run for it. And it's just the, the mayhem shot where it's just like, you know, silhouettes through the windows, you know, a car crashing, just, just all that. So it gives us enough to think, okay, everyone in this town has their own story going on right now. And that's just throughout the whole movie trinkled through. Like, I love it. I crack up at the end. Uh, how is it that he says, oh yeah, the radio host, Rockin' Ricky. But he right. goes uh, at the end, he comes on the radio again and is like, it's been a rough night for Rockin' Ricky, but we're still on the air. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just, you just imagine just he had this whole crazy adventure of which actually starts when we hear them on the radio the gremlins breaking in too um and then even down to like a touch that i i didn't even think i noticed before but that same rock and ricky moment at the end he says that the the firemen are on standby with their hoses like ready to you know as in a crowd control way spray all the gremlins oh. i guess okay. so it's basically like yeah the it's it's uh even though, yeah, not just is all this stuff going on everywhere, but again, the stakes of them escaping everywhere too is right there as in a little detail that's fun. But anyway, yeah, no, it just, I don't know maybe if there's more to say on that, but, or maybe you have some stuff on this, but yes, telling a contained story within all this mayhem. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the big the it's built into the construct of this type of movie. If you if you have a small town, I mean, even Jack Frost does it. I mean, maybe not as well, <laughs> Jack Frost, but it does it right. Like we we get introduced to the players, and it's contained so that we're not you know once we meet them, we kind of really really immediately understand who who they are. Like they're really painted in in fairly broad strokes right like mm-hmm. mrs deagle is very clearly miss like we get it we know who she is um the the guy who uh, the vietnam or not vietnam the world war ii veteran or is he vietnam veteran mr futterman world war ii man world war ii okay that's what i thought yeah like he, he we get who he is right away like and we meet these people i think the the what where jack frost fails is they try to just like do a like a assembly line of them <laughs> like they're like We're, okay here's this tim's person, mentioning now here's this tim's person. mentioning like, jack frost if you didn't know that was our last episode we covered for our christmas right. specials here yeah and it's <laughs> it's great in certain ways and not so great in other ways um but what this movie does is like it 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 sort of pads that out we get to we get to meet people in a in a more organic way throughout the first act of the movie and then all of those people come back around at some point. Like we know who the potential victims are. I think almost everybody except for the cops, really, we we meet early, early on. And like that's good. That's smart. That may that gives us something to to kind of hang on to as the chaos <laughs> like floods through the rest of the movie. Yeah. Um what else was that? Oh, and so when we see any of those people getting gremlined, <laughs> we have an opinion about it. Right? Like if you don't set those characters up and you don't make them clear early on, like give us an opinion of of who they are, we we can't have an opinion of uh, when they are at risk. Like we love seeing Mrs. Deagle get shot out of a window. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, this is this is one of those things, though, where I think the opposite can also be true. And I think all of this can say how this was just movie magic at play, them trusting the gremlins' muse as far as their editing. Because you did have some moments where, like, in the fun and game section, you have the 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 priest and the other guy at the mailbox you oh yeah <laughs> but uh you have um there was originally like a little you know a little short snippet of billy walking by and meeting the both of them on the street on his way to work um and then sort of the reverse of that you know we had the setup with judge reinhold's character and the scene was deleted where they find him like hi- hiding out in the safe at the bank but uh and then we also have setup that was lost where you know the um the uh, the caroling scene that's my favorite there that was originally set up by having one of those gremlins spying on carolers and getting the idea that way so huh. it's just to say that i think for all the examples of where setup is helpful you know in the first chunk of the movie and then there's that appeal of them watching it play out there's just also examples of sometimes we can just trust the audience like they don't need that much they just get it you know in in other times and i think that the movie 
does both is just, yeah, another another way to give evidence to it all just comes together. Right. I mean, I think they were smart about what needed to stay in and what we, you know, what was important to emphasize in the first act. And then you realize, even though you did maybe set up some of these sub sub characters, they made, you know, smart executive decisions to be like, actually, we're good. Like we we did our due diligence to set up the the bigger characters. We don't really need to set up the priest and the old codger because that's all they are. We know yeah. who they are, but just by them existing on the screen for a scene. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, so stuff like that. I think it is smart. It's like you kind of pick and choose who is more and or less important, and then you trim the fat. Totally. So yeah, um, it's. I mean, it's it's cool because like imagine if you had all those extra scenes, it would just slog the movie. It would just like kind of drag it down. Yeah. Well, I can, you know, to kind of, I guess I can transition with another deleted scene I thought was interesting, and I will tie this to what worked. This is not just a thing of note, <laughs> but it originally opened with um, Hoyt Axton, you know, as the dad character, Rand Peltzer. Uh, he goes to another shop first and kind of strikes out and hmm. looking for something. It was actually kind of funny. He says... uh He's looking for something like a gizmo. So that's where the name comes from. <laughs> so stupid. See, oh again, God. we don't do not need that setup. No. But uh <laughs> and then that's when the other kid finds him, leads him to the other shop. So, but when they realize, you know, they should just cut that, jump in the action, he's walking around Chinatown, gets the kid to come up to him, whatever, whatever. That's when they sort of got the idea or sort of saw the connection to sort of rewrite or add that um uh voiceover on his part. But then what works so well with that, that voiceover, which I homaged at the beginning of our episode here, is very, let me tell you a story. It's just one of the many aspects of this film and the different levels of filmmaking that is giving it, I kind of already said this, so just to say more on it, it's getting at this storybook, uh, any town takes place in any time quality that this film has to it which I think is a big, big what works. So yeah, the fact that it has that that narration that's just a bookending voiceover, the beginning and end, that's a big part of doing that. Doing that um, I think what was making me think of it again was the depiction of the characters that are sort of all the, the townspeople characters, the almost stereotype that you have of Mrs. Deagle, which is funny. Yeah, another cut scene. They had, uh, originally there was a moment where she was looking at a photo of her deceased husband and um, just had a moment of, of crying or saying, I miss you or something like that. And it was too sympathetic. The actress did, she did too good of a job. It just made (laughs) us like her that bit uh, too much to then get her, watch her shot out of a a window. Right. Yeah. Um, You can't, you can't make us like her or at least feel sorry for her. (laughs) Right. But uh, no, I thought it was interesting how just, I don't know, a lot of things working together to then set the tone of this storybook world where is that kind of world that Joe Dante uh, thought would best be suited for Gremlins. He said that he wanted a stylized world setting because he thought the Gremlins would seem more real against an unreal backdrop. So meaning, you know, shooting at the studio location in that time, that space, even the matte painting shot, you know, mm-hmm. all that's allowed kind of thing. But then it's interesting. You see that 
extended kind of classic Joe Dante touches itself where you're, there's not to the extent of Gremlins 2, but these like Looney Tunes-esque sound effects yep. throughout. You know, on, they're on full display in like the bar scene of all the like literal Looney Tunes sound effects. But I don't know where it's more interesting, I think, how it, it actually works is we have the sort of grounded real-life intro, whatever, whatever. Or not super realistic, whatever. Just realistic enough to be into the world, and even though it's storybook setting. But when uh, Rand's pitching his bathroom buddy, and he says, make sure you're at a meeting, blah, blah, blah. And then, uh, you know, you smell your breath, bad breath. And then there's a little, like, gong, you know, as if uh, it's almost like a commercial yeah. or something. And then he says again, just to put emphasis on it, bad breath. There's the <laughs> gong that slid right in there. But uh, anyway, sorry, this was kind of a rant, but I was just trying to tie how, like, there's just, I don't know, all these little touches throughout. It's always maybe a line I'm super fascinated with that you can never quite know about what the right version is until you're actually editing it. But of, you know, that line between movie world, movie fantasy world, and uh, reality. Yeah. And uh, how so many elements play into that. Well, it's funny you bring up that Looney Tunes thing is because I I do think that this, you know, intentional or not, I assume it's intentional, was so largely influenced by that style, you know, of directing that Looney Tunes sort of stuff. Um, Well, the idea of Gremlins was directly from a Looney Tunes cartoon. Oh, was it? Yeah, it was uh, a World War II set one about Gremlins. I remember that episode. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So... That speaks, I think, also to the appeal that it garnered at that time, right? Because you're actually, you're gaining the nostalgia from the generation that's watching it, who's brought their kids to watch it, right? They all, dude, it's wild to me how much my dad likes Looney Tunes. <laughs> yeah. like and, <laughs> I, and I do too, and I've watched probably just as much of it as him, but like, and and I watched it as a kid, as as did he. But he saw it in a much different context, right? Of the world was a different place. And when you can tap into what makes that stuff good, you broaden your audience uh, quite a lot. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like a six year old's gonna like it, and a I mean he was. He's 30 years older than me. So a 36-year-old at the time is is going to be, I mean, that's prime time to be like, oh, I'm getting in touch with this nostalgia from my childhood. Like, of course, he's getting to see his son, ex- like, kind of experience the things that he experienced at that time. Like, that's, it's built in, like, enjoyment. Right. I mean, so much about what you're saying about this and the appeal of Gizmo uh, it just makes me, I like mentioning this phrase a lot where it's, there's always the kid in us all that these things right. appeal to. Um, kind of connected to, well, no, I guess I waited to kind of transition <laughs> from some of what I was saying on the uh, the overall world building that it's doing, the fantasy world it's set in. I think a huge part of that and just like another, one of the biggest what works of this film for me is the music tim this soundtrack by jerry goldsmith is just one of the best i mean it what other jerry goldsmith score did we uh uh, uh experience 
the omen to, i forget if he did the omen too but it seems like you're have one in mind that you didn't he do out. poltergeist yeah absolutely um all part yeah, of this good larger spielberg spielberg collective circle right right um but it's i mean of course the obvious things that a good score does uh the catchy melodies throughout you know it's just singable recognizable melodies um and then like what i already said like the story building the world building it just puts you in this 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 fantasy land so well i think this is what's so notable about it and what he did that's so incredible is the music the instruments themselves as well as the compositions they sound and feel like gremlins <laughs> yeah. you know what i yeah. mean like totally. wah, 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 wah. just that is gremlins in music form it's how how incredible you know can i just say right now this is a, a, a tangent sort of but listen to the list of movies jerry goldsmith has composed music for Five of the Star Trek films, three of the Rambo films, Logan's Run, Planet of the Apes, Patton, Chinatown, Alien, Poltergeist, Gremlins, Hoosiers, Total Recall, Air Force One, eh, whatever, L.A. Confidential, Mulan, The Mummy, Lost World, Jurassic Park. I mean, that is insanity to me. In particular, Hoosiers, Alien, Chinatown, like and Poltergeist, and Total Recall to a degree. Like, those are some of my most, most favorite scores in film. And this, right. it's all one dude. Well, to even though it's the one you, you know, I, you know, probably maybe kind of rightly, I haven't revisited, you know, Turn Your Nose Up at Air Force One. That, I haven't seen it since I was a kid, but I loved that movie as a kid. And a big part of it really? was, I remember <laughs> it had an actual, like, memorable score. Which, oh, cool. I like, think I've Grem- only seen it once, so I have no memory of it. <laughs> but, uh, like, Gremlins and, like, all his scores, yeah, it just builds this world. It's just, uh, it just plugs us right in. But what I kind of wanted to use mentioning how great the music was overall was uh, transition to how... Uh, I guess another thing uh, that the score does or a score when it's working so well, it, it's doing is it's, there's this like confluence that happens between the, the sound of the, like the actual set, like sound effects happening mm-hmm. and then the score. And then also maybe kind of any in music, uh, uh, what would you call it? Like not non-score music you know christmas songs throughout it but there's just these moments in this film where it's like all the they have the sound and the music and what's on screen they sort of like on screen they all come together just to like make these serendipitous movie magic moments and that's just like since this is one of my all-time favorite films like i don't know i just want to share some of those where it just feels like something like it's all coming together just to make that give me that perfect movie rush you know so like an example of the score does that um the opening i guess not the score but music when the the christmas song comes at the the beginning christmas now's coming down and the title comes on tim that's just like me and my happy place like over (laughs) that shot like i just get movie happy chills when i hear that you know 
Um, it's so good. So it's ah, it's so magical. I love it. But then also just like there are these little like less, I don't know, less obvious moments that do that too, where everything just comes together. Like it's the way uh, when the dad comes home after, you know, he's bringing home Gizmo for the first time. I think it's like the music's doing something and the way that Barney, the dog, like he emits a noise that's like, and it's just like this really specific, like one second, just the way it all comes together. It just like strikes this mood of everything you want out of the moment. That's like them as a family. I don't know. It's just, it's always, even now just gives me this, this feeling of like, you're home for Christmas and you're in your safe <laughs> yeah. family place. But it's just so, I don't know, interesting to me how it's just like pinpointed into this one moment, like the way the sound effect of the dog and the music and the feel of the dad coming home and the wide shot that just all come together like that. It's just uh, so incredible. And there's, I don't know, probably a few more like that I can think of if I tried, but yeah, yeah it's where it's all coming together so well. It just gives me that little burst of movie joy. Well, speaking of movie joy, the big I think the biggest thing I noticed in this movie, this viewing was their extensive use of camera movement. Dude, the candid angles, I feel like talking about how this mo- movie was influential on me as a filmmaker, oh I realized God. it's because of this film probably why I got my love of candid angles. Yeah. <laughs> It's crazy. They're very precise. Like the the camera moves in, in throughout are not only really really smooth and like I think what it's doing to our brains too is that when you have sweeping camera moves, which is what they use a lot like in, at various angles too, like some of them are like sweeping sort of around like a crescent around the scene. And some of them are like sweeping in or out either way. It creates this fantasy kind of magical feel like that's just what they're like, what it's accomplishing. And it just, I think most people aren't looking at that at all. Right. You're just, you're just feeling it because Mm -hmm. you're in the story. But like being able to step back and go like really look at this, the, the technical component of what the camera is doing. I was yeah. shocked. I mean, I don't feel like that's very typical for a this era of filmmaking and b this genre. I just don't think you, it just it, it seems it seems like a an added or an additive piece that is part of what elevates the movie up quite a lot. Yeah. And and it's done so well that again, you, you, you really shouldn't notice it. You just feel it. And you're left with a feeling of, I, I mean, often of, of just a little bit of floaty discomfort, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which I love. It happens a lot up in Billy's room. Yeah, yeah. Um, Rightly so. I mean, (laughs) that's where a lot of important things are happening. (laughs) Well, I think I could give some good examples of what you're talking about um, while tying it to another thing I wanted to point out that worked, which was the sort of suspense and buildup of 
the gremlins and even the mogwai and seeing them for the first time and how all that plays out. It's just like so well, like we're so primed for, like we say, the first time, you know, when we see Gizmo even and, you know, from the front and which is that's just a him, beautiful push in him coming out of the box. So, well, there's the, the slow one, of course, that's that push in that you're talking about, but even wanted to point out there's when he pops out of the box before he slowly crawled out of it. And apparently it was great to hear in the commentary that that got like the biggest jump scare reaction you could imagine. Like when that played to the like theaters, like people were just so revved up, but it's just (laughs) so interesting how, yeah, we kind of like have that. It's like, we're on edge that little bit before because of that quick camera move timed right with before Mm -hmm. Gizmo jumping out. But then, like, with the suspense of the reveal of the gremlins themselves, we have, uh, I love, like, how the camera pushes in into the box of the gremlins cocoon in the school, in the cage. Like, just the way the music comes together with that shot and it goes through the box of just, like, I don't know, it's just so eerie and suspenseful of just exciting that we know, oh, God, it's going to burst out. And then, uh, great move, too, camera move with, the actual sort of like more full on reveal of a gremlin. Wait, I think we get a glimpse at it first when it, um, when the, the sort of medicine cabinet door opens in the school. But when we really get to look at it for, you know, prolonged a bit longer is, I mean, the brilliant scene fun and game scene of the film gotta of course mention is the mom fighting off all the gremlins i that is one of the pinnacle <laughs> to me that's like one of the high high highlights of this movie right it's the same apparently with audiences it's universally beloved oh god like yeah yeah perfect yeah it's so good that scene but it starts with it's great that reveal of the first gremlin in the kitchen it's like uh i think we're on the mom sort of in the the hall door frame entrance and then it uh dolly's back and with that that music going perfectly to reveal i think it's the gremlin eating the gingerbread cookie right by the mixer it's so good it really is i i almost wonder if if the effect that it has on us is a better way to describe it is that because we're so often in these camera moves doing uh two axis movements and sometimes three. So I think the effect that that actually has is, is more like a, it's more of a dream sensibility where you, uh, you almost, you almost feel like you could be falling. And even like that, that's true for the push-ins too. Like it almost feels like you're going to fall forward. There's Mm -hmm. something about the pacing of those moves, especially when they turn, you know, they can't, can't the camera, they put it into a canted angle, but you, you feel the move into that angle, right? They Mm -hmm. don't just cut to that angle. And so I think there's something about that where you really are, you're almost, it's, it's actually very similar in real life to when you have vertigo, like I, which is a horror. I don't wish vertigo on anybody. It is horrible. It's like you're, you're everything you're looking at. The whole world is just pinwheeling around visually. I mean, anyone it who's sucks. had a bad night drinking, I think can kind of approximate. <laughs> yeah. it's, that, it's that except with your eyes open. It's yeah. horrible. But 
the effect of almost it, it's almost like you're 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 knocking on the door of that with the camera like that feeling and in this movie this movie that is both mystical magical and terrifying that is like the perfect directing choice oh my God. to 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 say actually let's make the camera feel like we're about to fall over all the time cuz we are right? right like it's so good i yes I agree entirely. And I think there's an interesting connection with a couple things you said there, which, you know, I think you pointed out, it seemed like it wasn't shot like other films at a time, but I wonder if that's more so just the way we can distinguish it from the like the 50s set movies it's homaging with maybe hmm. not those sort of deliberate camera moves. Yeah, everything you described that the way that the, that the camera's doing, uh, it, yes, those adjectives you used... But I, I don't know. There's one, yeah, I'd use sinister. It gets at that quality mm. too that the gremlins yeah. have, which, but then also like the sense of fun levity. So I don't know. All is to say, I can kind of, I think, use that to transition to the sort of, you've talked about the theme of this film, but also now like the tone. It's a horror comedy. And I think like the way, yeah, you described how it's shot and what that's doing just like plugs right into that. And the idea of how candid angles plug right into that. It's like we have this, uh, and you know, the story overall, how it plugs into it. It's like we're in friendly Americana, everyday America, but we twist it and things get off and canted and sinister, you know? I just had another thought. I, you know, who, who knows what the, the intention or like the, the, the sort of specific framework that Joe Dante was coming from or, or who was the DP on this? I don't know. Um, another th- way that it makes me feel <laughs> is imagine that the camera itself was you, that you're a person standing in the room And you're reacting to the things around you. It is very precisely how I think a lot of people, myself included, would react. And sorry, this is a podcast. You can't see the visual of this. But when we first, when, uh, what's his name? Corey Feldman first sees Gizmo, like one of the first times, it's not the first time, but one of them, the camera does tilt into that canted angle, but we we do it. It's the same thing as if you were to see that and you would tilt your head like, oh my God, what is that? Mm-hmm. Mm. And I wonder almost if that's kind of where they were coming from of like, actually, if you were the camera, if you were in the room standing in this spot and this action was coming toward you, would you lean in at it and be like, whoa, what is that? And how does that feel if you lean in on it? Or would you slowly back away? Or would you kind of turn slowly and look around and be like, what is Mm. going on? Like, that's kind of the feel of this movie. Like, the personality that the camera itself has and the opinion of the camera is in this movie, which I think is so cool. I got to wonder if that's kind of partly a happy accident that would be inspired when you're shooting with these puppets that you have a pretty limited view on. Like you want to get, you not being able to shoot them fully like a actual creature. You got to, I don't know, you got to do a lot with the camera, not only what you're avoiding, but in sort of all that you're telling in the perspective. 
Yeah, I um, have no idea how intentional or not, or yeah. if it's just, like you said, happy accident. It's just the way it turned out. But the feeling it gives you is so good. And that's what I always fall back on. And when, I don't know, you kind of pose it as the filmmakers there making decisions, making it. I, I always just got to assume it's more like, yeah, that feels right. And then we come afterwards and kind of can analyze right, what right. about it, you know? Um, but yeah, no, I feel like we got to say enough and plenty on the tone of this movie. And that's what makes it so I mean, just overall unique, unique for the time. But I mean, that first came to mind when you, you know, you mentioned being a kid and going to see this and how I loved it as a kid. But I think this is a great example of one of those films where we kind of got, you know, maybe depending on the kid, they kind of have to see it for themselves. But there's it being scary is is can be good for certain kids. I don't know if that's the right word for it, but a certain there's there's fun to it there's an appeal there's a that little aspect of safe danger that you can only get from films i mean this having the mogwai and having the gremlins it perfectly embodies that kind of this that you know dynamic that a good you know horror comedy that a good horror comedy would have you know um so yeah everything i don't know is i think another thing that they kind of found in the honing of the script and the edit but uh as far as yeah i don't know just an example but overall tone it finds. And I think uh, this is kind of an in defense of a scene, but there's the somewhat infamous scene with Phoebe Cates, character, Kate telling the story of her father <laughs> uh, dressing up as Santa Claus and dying, you know, getting stuck in a chimney and firefighters, paramedics having to get him out. Uh Apparently that scene, like Joe Dante was just had to defend and defend to keep it in there kind of thing. And a a big place where he was coming from was like, Hey, it's like her only like real scene that she gets, you know, it's like as weird as it is, you know, it's kind of, uh, yeah, good for her character, blah, blah, blah. The only sort of, yeah, big moment she gets, but his thinking also, which I agree with is yeah. What it does for the tone. It's an example of, something i think he put it this way actually it's something that if you heard it as a story it could be kind of funny but if it happened to you it would be the most horrifying thing imaginable and so when when you kind of put it in that and i think that is why maybe people have a reaction to it that's uncomfortable like it's i don't know like for i don't know it's i i just think it's a bit too easy just to sort of pin that on it being like forced or hokey or unbelievable or whatever if you're really trying to i think it's that it's uncomfortable is why it works is that it's exactly like you said it's something you'd almost want to laugh at the ridiculousness and you might but at the same time it's utterly horrifying if it actually happened to you and i think i don't know it's a very kind of happens maybe just after the kind of midpoint area but it mm-hmm. happens at this nice kind of like doldrum after the gremlins main attack i don't know i think it comes in the perfect time in the movie i like that it gives her something and how it is weird and difficult i think is why it works so well for like the overall tone of the film um yeah i mean i there's so many reasons why i think it's not only good but necessary i mean for starters it gives her an otherwise very two-dimensional female character dimension like we get to understand who she is as a person prior to that she's just the the girl next door who hangs out with billy and maybe will go out with him 
Can you put this in the context of, I was curious to follow up with, you said you wanted to look at this viewing of it um, with a lens of, is this film anti-Christmas at all? And she's That's, the character that sort of represents that. <laughs> yes. So please go on with the reminder that you did say that about this. Absolutely. So it is critically important to the broader themes of the movie that we've already talked about. It's a story about about responsibility and misplaced good intention, right? Like dad wanted to surprise the kids, but didn't think it through. He didn't think through his plan. He kind of went off and did a thing that's, that's pretty largely considered like not a thing anybody would actually do. Like he, he, the lack of foresight to know that you probably will get stuck in a chimney, right? Like that's not, you aren't actually Santa. You can't magically go through the chimney. (laughs) But to tie it to those themes we already brought up, I mean, it's the, it's the furthest extreme equivalent of like, for the best gift I'll ever probably get was when I got an N64 as a kid. (laughs) This is, you know, my parents, grandma, whoever got it for me, uh, either don't think about put aside or unaware of the fact you know it was probably made with parts from you know labor camps or you know a, a, right. some kind of some kind of bad uh situation where the parts were made so it's that kind of like i don't know that that kind of give take society that we live them that the scene represents right and for her you know she's she she gets to be the i don't know what what do you call that the the other side, for lack of a better, more precise term, the, she's the other side of this like outlook of everything's merry and jolly and bright, you know, like the world is the world. Like there are things to be cautious about and we should probably acknowledge them because like the town kind of ignores a lot of that stuff. And it takes, I mean, the cops are even another representation of, they just don't take anything seriously until it's too late. And so you like, it's really a story about being kind of cavalier about the world you live in. And you shouldn't be that way. There are consequences. So I think it's, it's extremely important. And like, in a way that scene to me really does make this, a anti it's not anti christmas but it's a commentary on the blinders that people put on around things like christmas you know there's like uh billions of people on the planet that aren't christian and don't celebrate christmas like and hollywood as a as a sort of you know they tend to focus a lot on Christmas movies and not a lot on anything else, right? Like in, in regards to the other, whatever the other uh, holidays or, or important days of, of other cultures. And so to me, this is like a really important part of the broader themes of the movie that are sort of saying like, Hey, just so you know, there's a whole other world out there. That's not whatever this town is called hillside falls or whatever. (laughs) something ridiculous kingston you know that's yeah that's full of you know only white like uh straight you know whatever like down the line commercial of that era people and so like that's why i still i fall back on that this is this movie is a 
it's a commentary on all of that, all of those tropes. It's not, it's not falling into them. It's making fun of them. Right. What is she? I mean, that's in that scene when he's walking her home where she, you know, oh, you don't celebrate Christmas? God, uh, blah, 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 blah. You say you don't celebrate Christmas. Everyone treats you like a leper. Right. I mean, really, like that, that to me is like, that's kind of like one of the big themes of the movie, you know? And, and like, I think that's really cool because it is also, a, it's, <laughs> it's a movie about gremlins, right? Like it, it, it's, it's wild to think that we're like <laughs> this, these two things are the same, you know, like, right. the, like, well, I like think it's when, great. When do people look more like gremlins than the like black Friday footage that you see? Oh of God. People, right. Absolutely. No, that's exactly it. It's a, yeah, I really find it. It's more of a, of a, I don't know what the term is, but like a, a, a commentary on those things. And that's yeah. awesome because like well, we're six year old Tim wasn't worried about that shit. Right. And then, you know, she, she and loved out. the movie nonetheless. I, I feel like, you know, how old do you think you were when you first saw it? I don't know. Probably same age. Yeah. So like you weren't worried about that. So like you can have both. You can have but- a great movie that everybody enjoys that also has and is imbued with all of this really relevant worthwhile somewhat satirical somewhat cynical somewhat important commentary you know i think i i do remember though from that young age just always that scene and or more not just the the scene about the the dying but just that scene of him walking her home like was a big deal for me as a kid because i remember just it making me look at things in that way that i think were important, but again, had the safety of a movie. Like you think a six-year-old, why would you want to, but I don't know if I always have rants on like when you are, no matter how young you are, you are your own full grown person at that time in your individual experience, you know? Sure. So maybe I, and I just wasn't <laughs> very sheltered in that sense, in the, the movie sense, but I just remember it actually being a big deal. And, you know, she points out like, suicide rates are the highest around the holidays kind of thing you know it just i don't i feel like i i felt a sense of maturity for kind of being exposed to that concept of this yeah. uh it's, it's his uh billy's rosy outlook is outlook is real but it's uh has a fuller context to it too yeah totally uh well mentioning those two walking each other home i don't know i just got to say the cast overall just works so well for this movie i love all of them we mentioned the mom in the kitchen fighting scene i love her <laughs> face when she's at the top of the stairs and she hears do you hear what i hear for the first <laughs> time uh she's great hoyt axton as the dad is incredible and then just all these little side characters that speckle throughout the world a lot of them I didn't, you know, know the specific references, but um, all of them are, you know, actors from these films that Joe Dante did love, you know, as a kid or growing up or whatever. The great, great Dick Miller, who's Joe Dante's lucky charm as Mr. Futterman. I, he's he's always one of my all-time favorite actors. Rest in peace. Uh, God, he's just he just lights up the screen. He's so great, so great. Makes it to the sequel, too. Um, I don't know. So I don't know. I'd, maybe I could say a little on how they all work as like fitting tonally into this storybook Joe Dante world quality. But 
other than that, I don't know if I have much to say on uh, specifically why they all work, except that for that, and they're just all great. <laughs> yeah, I I concur. All right. Any favorites for you of the cast? Oh, man. I mean, I just would say Frances Lee McCain. It's like the mom is just, she's so good. <laughs> that scene, this, it is the standout scene. <laughs> it's just so, it's so awesome. Yeah. There's always that, that appeal of using, improvising what's around you to fend off invaders. <laughs> I think we yeah. talked about that with uh, Last House on the Left remake that we reviewed, actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> improvising objects around you. We talked about that in our Friday the 13th part three episode. Yep, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Well, this is, uh, I got to say some things are forever, you know, hold my peace that are just some of this run down a list of just little touches that are just yeah. so near and dear to me. I love so much. Well, I guess kind of come off favorite performances Shout out to Barney the dog, played by Mushroom the dog, who Joe Dante said is the best actor he's ever worked with, <laughs> who apparently he'd react to the gizmo and the gremlins and the mogwais like they were real. He said yeah. it was the best thing to have him to cut away. So like <laughs> if you're watching his reactions at the beginning of uh of Gizmo coming out of the box, like the way he's reacting to it, you can see it. It's totally as if he's like, what is this weird little creature appearing? It's incredible. And God, I love how he happens like twice at the end, the big mall set set piece at the end department store at the end where Barty's like walking along and there are a couple moments where Gizmo in the little car rides by him and startles mm -hmm. him. Yep. Love those moments. Um, I love how Stripe, when he's escaping their house, is the last surviving gremlin. He has like a little handkerchief and sneezes. Like just that <laughs> idea that they that they make him like have a little cold was it's just so funny, and I love how they did that. It doesn't like really come back or anything or pay off, but it's just oh like it's cold. He's just has a little sneeze. It's just so funny. Um, anytime. Gizmo, they put on the mouth of his that's like a little frown mouth. I just, yep. it's so cute and funny. I love it so much. It's a little frowny face mouth. Like the best is when he's launching in the car at the end and screaming and it's the way his lips come down to that frowny face. <laughs> um, already talked about how it's shot, all the candid angles. I love, uh, <laughs> I love Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Deagle with all her cats just cracks me up how they're meowing at her and everything always love that and just the whole setting of her place it's just like so perfect um and i love the futtermans i mean not just dick miller but the mrs futterman as well they have this great moment that just like makes you so endeared to this does all the character work that you need where um he's sitting there complaining about the reception and she goes you have the thingy referring to the remote control <laughs> and he goes like oh yeah you know and, gets it out from underneath them. But it just says so much about them and their relationship there. It was great. Um, anyway, I mean, I realize like it's basically be the whole movie I'd just be listing off if I kept going. So many great moments with the dad, Hoyt Axton and his yeah. inventions. I love all his little inventions. So crack me up, the sounds that they make. I do, my favorite invention of his is, the, it's like a one-off gag. It's like the multi- 
uh, swatted fly, fly swatter, like electric <laughs> fly swatter. It's so stupid. <laughs> it's, it's so good. Um, great. Well, the, 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 I think last kind of thing I, I really have here, just shout out to the gremlins and mogwais themselves. And you kind of, I think, posed just at the beginning how they did those close-ups. But just the close-up shots of them, and even the not close-up shots of them. So the close-up shots were done with like large-scale puppets to okay, be more detailed. Okay, that's what I was wondering. That's I what thought right. yeah, that yeah, would, yeah. was the case. I was like, there's something about how this looks that makes me think that they scaled up the puppet for close-ups. Yep. Cool. So, I don't know if it was for the close-ups of the Gremlins too. Maybe they're already big enough, but definitely the Mogwise. But either way, Tim, I mean, maybe we already just kind of covered this, but they are just so expressive. Like yeah. it's just the effects are just, it's, I don't know. They're just have such personality to them. Even when you're looking at the different Mogwise, but yeah, those close-ups, especially of each of them, just incredible, incredible. Like you can't, it's it is kind of funny. You mentioned Grogu and baby Yoda. I feel like we did have to come full circle with our CG journey to kind of just right. get back to, there's something about a cute little baby creature and done well as a puppet. That's just, so timeless and just makes you fall in love with them as is the case here. I, you know, for me, there's uh, obviously there's plenty of moments that I could, you know, talk about, but I think as a kid, you know, I like, obviously all, all of just gizmo in general is so appealing. And like, you know, my brother, I, I, I believe it, it was his, I think he got it for Christmas uh, he got a stuffed animal gizmo. And like, I remember that thing. I loved that thing. It was, <laughs> it was, I mean, it looked exactly like what I do remember though, is it didn't have a rubber face. It had a plastic face. Oh, weird. <laughs> yeah. Which was a little odd. So like I, I can, I can tactilely remember how that gizmo felt. Like I can remember the feeling of the fur and like the feeling of those plastic eyeballs. Um, But like more so, probably for me is the impact that the that the horror moments had in particular the like the cocooning the the like the um what do you call it the hatching of the (laughs) cocoons and the it still disturbs me when any of them get water on them the way that the puppets are moved and like kind of like shivery like squirmy yeah i mean they're in pain yeah yeah it always really really affected me i mean it just like freaked me out as a kid and even on this run i was like oh man still still the same feeling um but but by far more than anything the impact i remember as a kid being so unprepared to see stripe get doused by the fountain by the sunlight uh standing on the fountain (laughs) And have like the way that he melts and everything was traumatic. Like oh, I, yeah, it f- scared me so much. Like cover your eyes, kind of stuff. And it took a number of viewings as a kid to be like, okay, I can watch this now. It has an incredible. Maybe this is part of the psychological effect of it, as far and instead of just the obvious visceral, gross gooiness of all, but just the gremlins seem that much more real when you see their guts and skull and skeleton and, and all that. It's just like, Oh, this is a real thing with all these detailed 
elements inside of it. Ugh. Yeah. But I love it. Like, I think it formed certain sensibilities for me in, you know, as I grew up, like that and the melting faces in Raiders of the Lost Ark, like those were huge. And now I'm like, God, I would, I would die to be able to film that type of thing. It would be amazing. So those are my big ones. Practical melting effects. Got to have on your your filmmaking to do (laughs) wish list. Uh, Give me a reason. Last little thing I got to mention when you're talking about the transformation of the the water scenes, the the, the mogwais. My favorite sound effect in this film, and maybe my favorite sound effects ever, is like the the. I guess it's the sound of the balls expanding, but it's this like (laughs) organic animal like. like i can't really i can only approximate it but whatever that sound is is so good yep it's so good man all right let's move on yeah let's see if there's anything (laughs) not so good about my all-time favorite films here gremlins moving on what did not work it's not ready yet seems to work okay no something important's missing all right so i i actually i kind of only have one main one that i'll i'll do second um unfortunately you and i have a very different (laughs) sensibility about certain things i mean maybe fortunately i guess otherwise what would we talk about um I don't love the bar scene. Really? That's like, that's it second just, to the kitchen scene for ever. That's like famous. Everyone loves goes it. On, it goes on too long for me. I think I just kind of, it's a weird lull. And I feel like it actually, it, it feels like an extended sketch rather than a scene. Um, Which it basically is. And it's this weird pause in the movie to me. I don't know what it is, but I think the what I what I'm responding to is that the momentum of the movie is like rising, 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 and then really this scene is sort of stands outside of that and it's this pause to get a bunch of gags in. Now, do I think the gags are good? Absolutely. So it's a weird mixed feeling, right? Like, but as a as from a broader viewing like uh, I guess momentum <laughs> point of view. I think it's too long for where it exists in the movie, but I don't know what you would want to change about it. All so right. I don't know. That's the one that that one thing made me really kind of go, hmm. I feel like I just got the wind taken out of my the sails here. For a minute, even though that stuff's all really funny and ridiculous. So to defend that as my adult (laughs) filmmaker self, and maybe this is just different sensibilities, but just pacing wise, it totally fits right in for me. Like the movie overall, it has such a nice kind of clip, but not too clippy feel to it, Mm -hmm. but it does really move. And this just 
fits right in there for me just so well. I don't know. It just doesn't feel too long. But I will say, and this is more where I say in defense of my kid self, I kind of wanted to save this for things of note, but I had like some things on what I remember, you know, about this film that was unique to watching it as a kid, some kid memories watching it. Um, but just all that I would do to fill in this world and kind of the questions that I'd have, you know, just like where you're pulling from every little detail and are just so like enraptured with like the rules of the gremlins and all the repercussions of everything. Like for example, um, the the fact that you could see its red glowing eyes in the Christmas tree, I would go like as a kid, oh, their eyes can glow in the dark, but it doesn't always happen. So maybe it's a power they have, you know, just like <laughs> right, all right, that right. Would, would probably they just were like, oh, it looks kind of cool. Um, but then in the bar scene specifically, Tim, like that did so much for me and my kid brain were like we're just looking at it as sight gags or whatever now with them in their different outfits, but like them, like the them at the bar, like I imagined it was like this whole kind of like hierarchy and family amongst the gremlins. Like we had, this is the the old man gremlin who kind of, you know, had that personality was, you know, at the, at the poker table. And then he had his like, his his like right hand wife gremlin and then there was the kid that they had that was next to him it was just so funny how like yeah adult brain maybe is like here just these um just you know they're they're just gags but from a kid's sensibility like all the the things that the gremlins were doing that they chose to do it just made my imagination run wild with like their own individual personalities and interrelations with each other it's fun all right, that's cool. Um, okay. So my real, like, honestly critical uh, screenwriting character issue with this movie that, like, uh, it really does almost bring it down to a rent is that I don't think Billy is a character. I don't think he has dimension. And I certainly don't believe that he has an arc at all. He doesn't learn anything, that's for certain. <laughs> I mean, maybe he learns that Gremlin's, like, Mogwai good, Gremlin bad. But he does not, in any form, like, learn a lesson. He doesn't change. He's just like, oh, wow, what a day. Yes, I'll agree with you as far as uh, I think I became more aware of that than ever this time, but it doesn't uh, not work for me. How would you ever say it? It doesn't detract from me. And I think the movie may or may not be self-aware of it in a way, but I noticed for the first time ever, Tim, when when uh, Judge Reinhold's character, he calls Billy a putz, I think is the word yeah. he uses. And I was like, this time when I was watching it, I was kind of like, you know, he kind of really is a putz. <laughs> like, the way he, like, just so just breaks all the rules. Um, yeah, as you said, just really doesn't learn anything at the end. He's a little clever to defeat them at the end. You know, it's setting the place on fire or whatever. But he is kind of just going along with whatever. And I don't know. I think for me, there is an uncertain endearingness to that when it's played by the right person. But, uh... Yes, I get what you're saying, how maybe imagining a different version or if that kind of thing's important for you could definitely detract. 
Yeah. I mean, a big part of it is just like, yes, he, he does attempt to thwart Stripe and everything. And, but like, even in doing so, he's still such a putz. So like, in my mind, from a, from a screenwriting, like, you know, you get hammered these sort of, not rules, but just these things that you're like, oh, yeah, don't don't screw this up. If you're going to set him up with the problem of being a putz, you want to see him actualize out of that somehow. And I just don't think he ever does. Like, in a way, I feel like he never takes responsibility for his screw ups. And so like, I guess I would change the ending of the movie to some degree to have him say, I honestly think if he, all he needs to say is we, we don't deserve gizmo. And I think we should give him back and like make the effort and like, like have a goodbye and start to head out the door and be met by the the store owner the the original owner of of Gizmo or caretaker I guess if if and then he could be like I mean I get I like that he says he gets to be the one saying like you guys are not responsible enough to to handle this but there's something about Billy just being along for the ride that bums me out. Yeah. It's pretty bad. Like there is no good main, like there's no main character of the movie. It, 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 I mean, he is the main character, but woof. <laughs> you know, I try to look at maybe how that happened, knowing a bit how it was written and the script evolved and all that. But I think, uh, two things that maybe, you know, just once they had their production date set and they didn't quite hone it in on time, uh, fed into his putziness. First of all, he was written as he was originally like the Corey Feldman's character's age. He was like supposed to be twelve or thirteen or whatever <laughs> originally. So, okay. but they they didn't change anything around him for that. So, what we might see in a sort of young adult as more putziness could just be the repercussions of an adult playing a twelve-year-old character, or whatever. Uh, but that also kind of explains why. I don't know. He's still, his room definitely seems like he hasn't redecorated since, you know, turning 10. Right. He works at a bank. Yeah. Yeah. Like, how old is he? Right. But we know he's a aspiring uh, a drawer artist. Fun thing. Okay. Maybe that could have helped in a way, have more on that. But then also a thing that was sort of a change, uh, that was a change was gizmo and this gets to maybe not my one what did not work but just kind of like if i could just click a button to see an alternate version how would it be but gizmo originally was the one that turned into stripe when oh. eating after midnight or whatever so we basically lose our cute endearing uh you know uh, gizmo buddy so, you know, he's and then, you know, they're like, how are we going to do that? So that's how they wrote in that he's just in a backpack. Like originally how they had it, he also didn't really help save the day at the end by being the other one to pull the cord. That was all Billy he kind of shared that role. But anyway, I just kind of mm. think that there was something between rewriting that second half and to include Gizmo and then also maybe just all the other cuts they were doing. And then the fact that he they never really changed anything 
when they aged up his character that all that was kind of a confluence of things going on that that right to, you know it could explain partially at least what you're talking about that's interesting and it all makes sense honestly but that's it that's it for me everything else is great and ridiculous yeah, well, I mean, just kind of like what I glossed over real quick there was just imagining, you know, if I could click a button and imagine an alternate version of it. I don't know. I think there could be something too. as much as I love Gizmo, of course, the thought of going through that stress or whatever of losing him, I think could have done a lot for like feeling the sort of darker second half and the sort of horror repercussions of the presence of the gremlins taking over. And I think it could have then also, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe to your point, just put the focus a bit more on Billy and Kate somehow and what they have to do to save the day. Um, I don't know. Maybe there still is an element of like, I, I love gizmo, so I get why they did it. And again, I wouldn't want to change it, but I wonder if him, not being in the second half, if that does kind of have a tacked on feeling now in some kind of way. And if, uh, yeah, things could have been improved in in some way without having them. That would be very interesting because it would do a few things. And if you added one more element, I think you, you'd come to a more cathartic character ending. And that one other thing would be if you were to, if you were to do sort of what Back to the Future does, which is set up the uh, like the dad is a is kind of a, a a failure to launch screw up too, right? Like none of his stuff works. And if Billy is living under that sort of like burden, so to speak, and being told by the outside world that he is going to end up just like his dad, he's a screw up, he's not good at stuff, and then he does screw up Gizmo and the consequences that Gizmo turns into Stripe, then you you just are up, upping the ante of his character story, which is, I need to prove not only to the world, but to myself that I'm not a screw-up, or that being a screw-up is is okay if you find the deeper sort of relevance of what it is to be human right like he shouldn't he should maybe actively if his dad is such a kind of screw up he should actively be fighting against that idea and not want to be like that and and not be so endeared to his dad so that he can learn the lesson that it's not about being a screw up it's about being a good person and there are consequences to you kind of looking at the world through this other lens of like judgment essentially. And so when he does defeat Stripe, let's, let's presume that he still has to kill him. Maybe in some form or another, you have, I don't know, you can recall Gizmo somehow. I don't know how you would do it. It wouldn't be that he morphed back into Gizmo. That'd be dumb. Um, but it could be that, like, there was an offspring prior to Billy's being a complete knucklehead and doing things wrong. There's a baby gizmo. Um, yeah, like, you could do something like that that would maybe make you feel okay about the whole thing. And then it gives 
Billy the opportunity in the future, like past the credits of the movie, we can go, oh, well, maybe he'll not screw it up this time because he's learned a lesson and he loves his dad now. You know, like, like I can see that version of this working. Having said that, I, I, I actually think how things landed is great. Like, it does a different thing. Like they didn't go down that path and they, you know, what is sacrificed is Billy's dimensionality, I guess. Um, But what's gained, I think is actually really valuable. Like that end sequence, if you didn't have gizmo in that end sequence, man, bummer. (laughs) Right. Right. Like I get, I think it was Steven Spielberg. Who's kind of like, we got to keep him in. And I totally get where he was coming from. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, cool. All right, then. Well, I think we can move on to our big final section here. I got a lot of fun stuff for us. You ready for it? I'm ready. All right, here we go. Things of note. Things of note! (laughs) This should be interesting. Well, since we are already just kind of on alternate versions, things that were darker without gizmo. Uh, in the, the script, the original script was a lot darker originally, just in its <laughs> emphasis on a dark and dark comedy, where the mom was the one who had her like head chopped off, not the Kremlin. Um, oh my God. And like the, the teacher, I think they have a shot version where... Uh, like just had a, like a ton of needles stabbed into him or like it was much more gruesome kind of thing. So that was kind of interesting to imagine. But yeah, no, just interesting. I guess that's all just more evidence of how it changed throughout. And you can imagine once they were already on that sort of energy of making it less dark, how uh, keeping Gizmo in kind of fell right into all that too. Um, totally. All right. Well, anything anything you had or do you just want me to go down everything I had from my list here from listening to the commentaries? All I will say is that I I checked my notes and they filmed in both the Warner Brothers lot and the Universal lot. Great. <laughs> so it could be fun to see uh what they do in what or what what they do in which. Next time I'm on the uh the universal lot there. I'll check. All right, Tim. Yeah, no, fun. Tons of fun tidbits here. Got to report back on. Warner, this was the film that brought back the original Warner Brothers logo. If you remember, for like, I think most of the 70s and 80s, it w- was what that was called the worm logo, where it's just sort of like these, uh, just like a few sort of fat, like rounded rectangles making up the WB, I guess. But as far as the full on oh, shield, yeah. yeah. As far as like that full on shield logo, this was the film that brought that back. Joe Dante thought it'd be fitting for the kind of throwback equality the film has, and then they liked it so much they discontinued the seventies, early eighties other logo, and this is the film that brought it back. That was fun. Um, wow, cool. The key Luke who plays old man. He uh, that was super interesting. He was an artist and did some of the original King Tr- Kong drawings for the original King Kong press book, 
he'd been in the biz for a while. Fun little tidbit about him. Um, oh, just, Tim, to kind of bring it back to our theme discussion too. Uh, I think it was, yeah, I think it was uh, Joe Dante who was going on about all the gremlins in a large part represent the idea of entropy of everything is going to fall apart anyways. So that's hmm. what he, he kind of brought that up with why they thought of having the dad be an inventor with failed inventions was just like, yeah, everything's always going to be going wrong. And then he, you know, put it in the context of that term gremlins is a historical term that sort of was for anything that would go wrong with your plane was just, Oh, it's gremlins. Right. So, that context for that. Oh, Tim, I thought of you and wanted to ask you, didn't you have like a weird relationship with it's a wonderful life? Like you didn't like it or the parts that you have seen you don't like, or that you just kind of don't want to watch it. What was all that? Uh, (laughs) kind of my relationship with it is that I've only ever watched it all the way through one time. I never watched it growing up. It was, I don't know. Everybody else I knew, even my family was like, what do you mean? You've never seen it. I don't know what I was doing. Maybe I just was like, no, thanks. I'm just going to leave the room every time it was on. I, I have no idea, but I have, I have no relationship with it because I've never really watched it. Just Got the it. one time. I couldn't remember if it was that, like you saw it the ones and weren't crazy about it, but it just reminded me of, um, how the mom in this, when she's watching it and when Billy comes in and goes, what's wrong? She says, Oh, nothing bad movie. So she doesn't like It's a Wonderful Life. I thought that was funny. But uh, yeah, that the movie, the clips of it are used throughout. But it was funny. I thought it was interesting in the commentary. They're sort of the this meets that pitch that they had for Gremlins or way that they described it was It's a Wonderful Life meets The Birds. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's interesting. They have they had all this stuff shot, Tim. Like apparently the original cut was like two and a half hours or something. Like it's crazy. Oh, There's so much more of this movie. But I thought this one was interesting. Where remember how the gremlins they or the 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 mogwais they get Barney outside and tie him up and hang him and they think it's Mrs. Deagle, you know, with the Christmas lights. Mm-hmm. Um there's a whole sequence that they shot of the kind of like critters which is inspired by you know sort of rip off of the mogwais but the mogwais would get around by turning into little balls and rolling around so they had a <laughs> sequence of the mogwais rolling down the stairs and leading barney outside like he was chasing them as little balls that was okay funny. <laughs> <laughs> um oh i had to shout out um i don't know this is some you know more personal stuff on it but as far as not only was this just film a formative film in just what it is as a movie and that I loved it so much, but, you know, I mentioned also that I became aware of the idea of a, a director, a Joe Dante made this and other films I liked a lot as a kid into this day. But also we had a family friend who worked uh, for ILM and CWI was Chris Wales's company that did this film and made this um made all the gremlins effects. So uh, yeah, just wanted to shout out family friend, Eric Jensen, who's credited. I don't know. I never heard him this way as E Eric Jensen. He was the project coordinator. He has the second credit right underneath Chris Wales at the end credits. Um, So 
it was really cool as a kid. I like got to go to CWI and see like they had all the actual gremlins just sort of like gremlins littered around the workshop and everything. So like, I mean, I've stories like that, that he got me into for ILM and everything, but gremlins being so important to me as a kid, just will never forget that getting to go to the actual gremlins creature shop and meet Chris Wales and just, yeah, have that connection all there. And it was really fun for me too, just him as a family friend. Uh, Chris Wallis is on one of the commentaries and shouted Eric out twice on the commentary. So Eric, if you're listening to this and didn't know, you should listen to it. But he was telling some story about like how the uh, the studio was being, someone at the studio was being like to the total bean counter and was like going down the line item list and was giving the, the effects crew like, a hard time about a knife that they wanted that cost $5. So what is this, a $5 knife? And it like was just one of those like hour-long phone calls that wasted all this time. But when Chris Wallace was telling that story, he mentioned Eric getting on the phone and it was this, this big deal. I thought that was funny. And then um, uh, their family friend, because I was uh, yeah, good friends, one of my old dear friends, Ian is his son, his sister, Kate, she gets shouted out during the production too, where, um, <laughs> wow. Yeah. They mentioned Chris Wallace mentioned how Eric even had a kid during the production of this film. So it was just fun being friends with that kid, knowing that kid. Anyway, personal connection stuff aside, continue going down it. I just got a kick out of that. You can imagine hearing in the commentary tip toe fun filmmaking tidbit. You can relate to this, uh, the shot of Stripe jumping into the pool and it's so so great. He's like plugging his nose or whatever, does that cannonball dive into it. Um, the yeah. puppet or whatever, it was like so hard for him to like stay straight up. Apparently they did like 60 takes. They said, uh, finally oh got God. it where he, yeah, finally got it where he was straight up. And then they said, we have to do it again. They realized they had forgotten Stripe's stripe on his head. <laughs> oh no <laughs> so I don't know how much longer it took but just, that, was, that was funny that is brutal yeah um, Howie Mandel pointed out I think it must have been him that it was so interesting I thought that all of the little gizmo speak that they did you know just these sort of broken English half English words that um, it took weeks and weeks and weeks to record that because they recorded gizmo for what would make sense for all the international release languages. So (laughs) even that was down to like sounds and inflections. Like they'd say, uh, oh yeah, no, if that's his worried noise, a better worried noise for a Japanese speaker would be this, you know? So they just (laughs) took forever, but all the major release international languages, like a hundred of them, whatever they would did. uh, Yeah. He had, there's a gizmo for them all, which I just think is so much fun. There's a German gizmo. There's a Polish gizmo, whatever. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, thought this was really funny. Zach Galligan, he, when he got the part, all the, the addition scene was that uh, scene of him walking her home. So he thought this film was just like some other teen romance theme, you know, John Hughes type movie that was hot at the time. So it just cracks me up to think like, that's what he thought he got cast for. And then to be like, no, actually there's gremlins in it. It's a monster movie. Just like how funny and great. That would be a shock. Oh, I just had to run down the list of, uh, 
God, I don't know if it was just my new fancy ultra HD version of it or whatever, but I was noticing some things, Tim. Like, I've seen this movie, what, like, what? You know, it's easy to say a hundred times or whatever, but there's a handful of things I never noticed before. It was so much fun. Like, this mm. is, you know, how movies are just good movies are the gifts that keep on giving. Uh, I never noticed before that the gremlin that she stabs to death that you can still see it like in the background quivering when she's then, uh, you know, is fighting the gremlin she puts in the microwave. Thought that was great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I never noticed, you know, how like the gremlin starts up the record player that lures her downstairs when it shows the receiver and the record player. You see gremlin prints in the dust on top of the receiver. Never noticed that wow. before. Thought that was so cool. Um, oh, yeah. And I, uh, there's always kind of some joking. Uh, it seemed like, you know how the second one's essentially just a spoof of this first one? One of those things that uh, people would kind of give it a bad time for was, oh, apparently Mr. Futterman's still alive. You not, he got run over by a tractor. But actually, in this film, he does not get run over by the tractor. You hear the newscaster at the end uh, say, oh, we're going to Mr. Futterman now who survived an attack, yada, yada. So, like, <laughs> canon to the first Gremlins, he did survive the snowplow, <laughs> which is the first time ever hearing that. Um, also, yeah, in the background in the news, uh, some details about Mrs. Deagle I had never heard before, which ties to everything we were talking about, about the themes in her character. Apparently, her deceased husband, you hear this in the background, and it talks about her death in the news that her husband was a like corrupt chemical plant owner or something like that. So just right, right on that theme we're talking about of exploitation of our natural world that old man points out at the end. Well, Tim, for these big uh, films that we do, uh, I always think it's interesting to pose, you know, especially ones, it's one of those few ones that they've yet to fully reboot somehow there's no gremlins three so i don't know i just always have to pose like what do you how do you think you could do could you do a good gremlins three like i feel like obviously like they said you it'd have to be puppets not cg i think uh or at least largely puppets yeah. but as far as just that's like, why it'll you, never get made <laughs> i don't know grogu has made a lot of money you don't know true um you know, proved that. But just as far as like what it would be tonally and story wise, because you have the elements of like the first one, it being important, like Joe Dante pointed out, it's a, you know, unrealistic creatures set against, uh, will seem more real because they're put against an unrealistic background. And then you have the second one, which was just an all out Looney Tunes style spoof of the first one. So like, how do you, do something else, you know, that fits within that context. How do you actually do something fresh with it? Is it about just going back to just doing the first one again? Like, what the hell would a Gremlins 3 be? My God, what a question. Man, I and I'm unprepared to <laughs> answer it. I think my first instinct is to say that you can bring back gizmo but you you shouldn't have gizmo be the um the mechanism with which the the a horde of gremlins come forth 
So I don't know exactly how you would work around that, but finding a workaround to make, I mean, Gizmo could even become a character that needs to be tracked down to help solve the issue. I don't know, but that's a little bit of that, like, like the propping up Luke Skywalker thing that the new Star Wars did. That's I don't true. know if it's, <laughs> it's great. Like, gotta just, ooh, Gizmo. Um, it's just like, yeah, I don't know. I, God, I don't know what would work. Like, I think you still want it to take place in kind of small town middle America or or it doesn't actually have to be in the U.S., but in a remote place like a fairly remote place yeah i don't know that's a really hard that's a really really hard thing to to conceive of on the fly yeah i'm not sure what i would want to see maybe i would want to see like more lore Mm. about like these creatures and if there are actually you know what i would like to see i'd like to see where the creatures sort of originated from and other creatures from whatever realm or or place that is like i'd like to see some mythology about it cool well tim you may be excited to hear then uh i think there's some fun (laughs) oh no there's some fun things of note where i'm like you know it's i think it's super interesting we haven't had a third one yet but it's super interesting to see where gremlins have appeared and you know Mm. pop culture and media since the second one so, you, I guess you haven't heard of it, but it's an HBO produced, but I guess coming out on um, on Cartoon Network, a cartoon called Gremlins, Secrets of the Mogwai. So, wow. <laughs> get this. It's a 10 <laughs> episodes and will serve as a prequel. And it's set in 1920s Shanghai, China. It'll tell the story of how 10-year-old Sam Wing met Gizmo as a young Mogwai. Well, there you go. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Cool. Thanks, guys. Thanks for providing me with the thing I want. (laughs) So um, then we also had the gremlins appear in the new Space Jam film in a pretty like prominent shot. They're running at camera. (laughs) Stripe and his buddies. Those gremlins, one gremlins, not gremlins, two gremlins. They do look different. Thought that was fun. Uh, Tim, this was like one of the learning about this, what I'm about to share was just one of those like, there's just, there's just still treasure to be found in this world of these things. I'm like, how was I not aware of that? So there are, there's these parks in Germany and Austria called like Warner Brothers Movie World. Have you heard of these places? No. They're like smaller versions of the Universal Studios. Like you get, they're like mini theme parks that are movie studio, you know, themed that are Warner, you know, the Warner Brothers equivalent of Universal Studios. It's the easy way to put it. Cool. And at the Australia one and the German one, for a time, <laughs> I think it was uh, opened in the early 90s and closed in 2001. But there was uh, something, there was a dark ride called the Great Gremlins Adventure. And so you had in... It's is basically a dark ride where it was kind of like you'd go through it would start off where you're watching clips of famous 
films in a little theater, famous Warner Brothers films, and then using the footage from Gremlins 2 of the Gremlins disrupting the projector like the movie's breaking, that would happen during it. Then you'd get like ushered into a hall and like there'd be Gremlin noises and then there'd be animated Gremlins puppets all like in this editing suite and around yada yada, (laughs) you know, just that kind of thing. Like you'd step onto a ride. Um, but it was so funny. And I don't know if this was just like local marking. What do Australians like and what do Germans like? The Australian <laughs> version had Beetlejuice as kind of this like host throughout it and a character who would, you know, appear, appear throughout it, kind of culminate <laughs> in an ending with Beetlejuice. So just so weird. Talk about it's very uh, ready player one of the melding of these two right, properties, yeah. right? The crossovers oh we didn't know we needed. But this is just so. German, I think, of the Germans one that they did. They didn't have Beetlejuice. Guess, you no, you won't guess. But the character that they chose to be like the sort of character throughout it. You look like you want to guess, do you? Well, I do now. Yeah. Is it um It's a TV show, it, uh, not a movie. A TV show. Is it an 80s TV show? Yes. Is it Knight Rider? No. Damn. Is it the Bionic Man? No. <laughs> I don't know then. Okay. Well, it's right. I remember the one time I went to Germany as like a teenager. This was very popular there. So it makes sense. It was Alf. (laughs) So it's, of course. So you can watch it on YouTube. It's so trippy. It's like you're watching an Alf episode and the gremlins come out. It's like so weird. Um, It's just so odd. So yeah, the dark ride version. Doubling down on puppets. Right. Uh, (laughs) Features ALF. So if you're a big fan of Gremlins and ALF, lucky you, you can still watch some footage of a ride uh, where they're featured together. (laughs) So weird. But yeah, check it out on YouTube if you're like as fascinated with this as I am. They have like, you know, ride footage and little documentary on it and stuff that cracks me up. Amazing. Um, Maybe I should have saved that for last. That's the best one. But I was surprised. I, maybe it's because I don't watch TV anymore. But it was fun. They did do a f- reunion between Billy Peltzer and Gizmo for a Mountain Dew ad. If you remember, those <laughs> oh, are kind of in vogue. I, that sounds familiar. I'm <laughs> so, sure I've seen it. Um, it's so just weird and stupid because it's a Mountain Dew commercial. But it they did make me laugh at the end with a gag where it's like, I forget what they're doing, what they're talking about, Mountain Dew, whatever. They're like sitting in the living room together. But the gag I liked is that his daughter comes in at the end and it's like totally the corporate version of like a Gen Zer, you know, indifferent kind of to her parent, whatever. Um, but on her shoulder, she has her own little mogwai. And like her and her little mogwai, they give an eye roll at the dad or at Billy as the dad. It's just, oh my God. <laughs> That made me laugh. Can we just talk about the idea that your name is Billy, but you're now an adult and you still get called (laughs) Billy? I don't know if they call it. I just called him that. So (laughs) William Peltzer, which I guess is what they call him in Gremlins too. I forget. No, they still call him both. They call him Billy. Um, Anyway, yeah. So no Gremlins 3, but uh, we got, we've had the Gremlins pop up here and there, whether they're waiting for return or not. I don't know. Well, time will tell. They'll always be a part of us. <laughs> well, as we discussed, gremlins are always a part of us. Great. All right, Tim. Feel like that's it for gremlins. Can 
wrap a devious bow on that wrap up mm-hmm. here maybe some quick recommendations sure i'll do i'll i'll do a recommendation i went to see uh eternals finally which is an, the latest marvel uh universe movie and i quite liked it i think that there's a bunch of people out there who are mad at it because of this that or the other thing but to them i would say it's not for you. So fuck off. <laughs> it's Fighting such a words. good, beautiful movie about like humanity and how like we're all the same, but we're all different and love and like family. It's just, it's really, really remarkable and visually just wild. And the, just all around the design is cool there's it's it is not like the previous marvel movies and i think that that's a a good thing like they are changing it up they're doing different stuff and they're they're introducing us to a different way of telling these stories so i i really enjoyed it like i I borderline want to go, this is very rare for me too, but I borderline want to go see it again in the theater specifically. So high praise. I, I, I think it's great. And if, you know, if you're not uh, a boring opinioned uh, <laughs> n- Marvel fandom nerd boy, you'll probably like this movie. <laughs> But for clarification, you are, Tim is a Marvel fan nerd, but not a... That's right. The, yeah, there the, is a the distinction type. I'm yeah. making, I guess. <laughs> cool. So. Well, I always want to... I, I have to say I'm more fascinated with this phase two, three, four, whatever you call it now, uh, Marvel I films. I think we're on four. <laughs> whatever. Uh, Post-endgame. Post I'm super curious yeah. to see if they're going to start doing things that are different. So I'll check it out. Yeah, between that, like Shang-Chi and this, like I'm really, it's cool to see where they're like venturing. It's more cool. fantasy stuff. So it's it, I like that. Well, Tim, you know, I was about to just recommend Dead here. Like, of course, I had to go out and see the new Paul Thomas Anderson Paul Thomas Anderson film, Licorice Pizza. I mean, dude doesn't make bad movies, but I don't want to recommend it. I mean, whatever, you're going to see it and it's great. Of course, doesn't need me. <laughs> but just, I think I you mentioning that Disney film, uh, which Marvel is, and um, being on theme to our film today as far as uh, young people befriending furry creatures. I was just, and the positive mm. messages that you were saying was at the end of uh, the Eternals, I was just reminded about how much I enjoyed from still 2021 this year, Raya and the Last Dragon. Did you see oh, that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen it. I've heard really great things, though. Yeah, it was fun. And like you said, just really, I think, good um, good, good messages for our world. I always, you know, like the stories, just like I said, of <laughs> people and their their pets <laughs> i don't know her furry dragon friend That's right. since having to save the world so i'll recommend that raya and the last dragon but also of course see licorice pizza nice i i would actually yeah i think that one is streaming somewhere uh, i should uh check it out yeah that's on disney plus yeah cool cool great well i think that's it then for today's big old episode on one of my all-time favorites here gremlins 
Uh, I gotta watch Gremlins 2 now just to, to finish the whole, <laughs> to finish the series. Just yeah, round out the year. Yeah, exactly. Great, and this also does round out our year of dismembering horror here of our Christmas films, as well as we are not, we're going on a, a release hiatus to sort of uh, revamp, recharge for uh, coming back in February. But uh, no, I don't want to say it's a hiatus because we're going to be working on all that I know, exactly. <laughs> in the meantime. <laughs> so not not a, necessarily a hiatus for dismembering horror as far as Tim and I are concerned, but as far as for uh, you out there as listeners who are also dismembering horror with us, yeah, we'll be back in February and let's just go ahead and announce it. We did all the Scream movies last October it, to preserve a world pre-new Scream we can't not do it. We got to be doing, we got to do the new Scream movie come out. So not officially called Scream 5, just called Scream 2022. <laughs> yep. We'll be back with in uh, February sometime. We'll keep you I have high that. hopes that it will be better than The Grudge 2020. I think so. Oh, that was our first January movie back that year. <laughs> That's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Uh, so yeah, all exciting things on the horizon for us. We hope uh, for you and your pursuits, that's true for you as well. Great. Well, our big ask is you tell a friend if you made it this far to check out our show. You can find us wherever you found us, dismemberinghore.com. We love to get submissions from you. We may uh, queue up some submissions and I think put those at the top of our pile. Anything that anyone's asked us to review and watch, we're going to try to hit up. So yeah, great. All right, then. And uh, actually, I'll say uh, this this film, Gremlins, was a bit of a request from someone. So you know who you are. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for being here. In closing, remember to never, never feed them after midnight. Thanks for listening. And we will see you next time. Goodbye. Good. <laughs>